0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Okay, so on this episode, Nate and I sit down and we do a deep dive into healthcare. It's actually a two-part episode, and I'm pretty sure we're close to like five hours of stuff. So this is going to be two weeks in a row of a lot of talk about healthcare. And just to give you kind of a preface for what we're going to talk about, um, the first uh, part that we're going to cover is kind of... Uh, I guess you could say the healthcare quagmire that we're in and how we got here and some thoughts about that, including all kinds of rabbit trails, because whenever I talk to Nate, he always says something that sparks a thought in my mind or that I need more clarity on because I'm stupid. <laughs> and, um, and ultimately, uh, we go down that rabbit trail and I learn a little more and you get to come along for the ride and learn with me. So here it is, part one of healthcare. All right, I'm here with Nathan McConkey again. You've been on episode 1. You were the Genesis episode. You could kind of we could say it that way in a couple ways, the Genesis episode and that we talked about B-O-G. evolution yeah. and God and also the Genesis the first episode of the podcast and episode 10. Mm-hmm. And now you're back and I don't know this will be probably released somewhere in the 20s when when it releases. So, you're you're hitting that like every 10 you're getting yeah, the, getting a slice of I've the pie. Been
1: over 10% of the podcast. Yeah. Your
0: podcasts, over right? 10% of the podcasts at That's this right. I'm point. So, sure am So, you'll uh, get a sizable so, yes. cut of the check, but I'm sure. You're yes, going to I'll let you know when those residuals start coming in. <laughs> I'll hit you up. So, uh, so Nate, why don't you start like uh, letting people know maybe they didn't listen to the first episode or episode 10, they don't know you. Uh, tell them a little bit about you, your background, who you are, what you're about.
1: Sure. All right. So, um, my name is Nate McConkey. Um, I'm a physician among other things. Um, I'm board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics. I'm also certified pre-hospital physician, and I'm getting trained currently in cardiology and electrophysiology. Uh, I also have a master's degree in public health, and my undergraduate degree was in cytomolecular biology. So I've got several degrees related to either healthcare science delivery, um, actual medicine, as well as basic science on top of that. Um, So I've been a physician for the better part of this decade um much of my work is in specifically heart disease but i also have an interest in health policy as well as health psychology and decision making um which is going to be relevant for our talk today certainly yeah um and for more details obviously there's two other podcasts with more on my background (laughs) and who i am and my views on life in general so yeah no that's great labor that point further
0: that's great make sure to go back and listen to those podcasts if you haven't already and um and so today, what I thought would be really cool for us to talk about, because you and I have like sidebar conversations mm-hmm. at, after church or at other times. And like, and I'm always like, wow, this like short little conversation, if we expanded that out, that could be a great podcast episode. I think I've said that to you like 10 different times in both <laughs> conversations. But, um, but the one conversation we were having one day was on the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And obviously we're in an election year where everyone has their their, their policies and platforms about all different kinds of um, problems that exist in our world, right? Whether that's foreign policy, domestic policy, all, all over the place. But one thing you're hearing a lot about in this particular election cycle is healthcare policy. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems <laughs> like it's a pretty polarizing conversation in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, some people are very, you know, this is the way it should be. This is the only way it should be. Some people are over here. This is the way it should be. This is the only way it should be. And I guess what, what I would like to, to do today is to try to get your perspective. You're, you're incredibly intelligent. Like uh, every conversation I have with you, you're well-informed. You, you, you tend to have a, a decent understanding and grasp of, you know, um, the complications surrounding things, even mm-hmm. when people are saying we should just do it this way. Well, that way is great, but it will have some effects over here. Like, I think, I, I guess I want to see the broader picture of the healthcare uh, reality we're in. I mean, it seems to me that w- what I hear regularly is like we are, you know, um, in a position as a country where, where we have a lot of uninsured or underinsured people when you look at other countries that um, are able to have uh, more affordable healthcare, mm-hmm. and and it seems like there's some things that we've done in our history that have put us in that position, or or some policies that, are, that have placed us there. And ultimately, I guess what I want this conversation to be today is to kind of expose the complications, not to be partisan on one side or the other, but simply to try to understand uh, the complexity of healthcare. But then also to, for for me personally, one of the things I'd love to know is like, what is a compassionate healthcare ethic? When it comes to someone who wants people who are, you know, considered the least of these, considered those people who are at the margins, uh, to have their needs met when it comes to healthcare, but do it in a way that's sustainable and that's not mm-hmm. that's not you know, um, uh, you know, that's responsible too. Does that make sense? Like I yes. think I think I think both of those things are really important. And so, um, so yeah, I, I don't know where you think we should start. Like, how do you think maybe the best way to say is. If you were to describe the landscape like if if an alien came down right now, this is a great way to start this conversation. Yeah. If an alien came down right now and you had like they had no concept of our healthcare policy and how it worked, <laughs> and you had to explain how we got in the quagmire of our healthcare system the way it is right now, which I don't know, maybe you don't consider it a quagmire. I think it's a little it bit is. of a quagmire. Yeah. Um where would you go back in history to kind of say, well, it all started here, or here's some key mile markers <laughs> in what created the, the frustration we're working through right now and the problems we're trying to solve?
1: Well, I don't even know if you have to invoke the idea of a space aliens for this, because <laughs> if you brought a European to the United States, sure. they would be equally astonished at how things are run here. Okay, But let me start by saying some elements of where we are now. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I'll explain how we got here and how it has implications for moving forward. So whenever we talk about the US healthcare system, we always kind of put it in quotes, because unlike most countries, we don't have a single unified entity that provides healthcare. Um, in order to have a healthcare system as a whole, there are a few different parts. You need to have providers, the ones who actually perform the healthcare services, physicians, nurses, therapists, etc. You also need to have a financer, someone who pays for all those services, which are not free. Um, for most people with employer-sponsored insurance, that is your employer. And that's distinct from a payer, which is someone who manages that money and actually makes arrangements to pay for care, which would be something like an insurance company. Um, insurers are kind of a separate category, but usually it's lumped in with the payers in this case. Um, that means that the payers are the ones who take the money given to them by the financers and decide what services from the providers justify payment. And that in itself could be a whole Ted talk. So we'll briefly yeah. touch on that, but that's an important part as well. Um, there really isn't any situation in the U S where all of those things fall under one roof as it would be in another country. So many different systems that we have in other countries include things like a national health system, like we see in the UK and Commonwealth countries, where practitioners of the healthcare sciences are actually government employees and the government pays them directly for their services. Um, That's different from a national health insurance, like in Canada, where hospitals are owned privately, physicians are um, employed by those hospitals, but then the government actually administers payments to them, which it pays for by collecting taxes, which is also distinct from something in Germany, uh, socialized medicine, which is a common model in Europe. Where essentially everyone pays into one bucket, and from that, it's divvied out into whatever care is deemed necessary. So there are different levels of a healthcare system, per se, mm. but in all of them, in most other countries with quote universal healthcare, the government takes a sizable role. In the US, however, we have private insurance companies that individuals can choose from in order to get their personal insurance. We have hospitals that are operated completely of their own accord, and while they have to be certified or inspected or reviewed by agencies that are often affiliated with the government, the government themselves doesn't directly involve themselves in them, with the exception of things like VA hospitals. Um, the individual who pays for their health care is usually Either the individual themselves, if they're paying out of pocket, or it can be their employer through employer-sponsored health care. But, you know, these particular entities don't necessarily talk to each other. They don't necessarily have an agreed-upon standard for, you know, when one person goes to this hospital, they get the same care as that person who went to that hospital. Mm. So that's one of the unique elements to it, and that's a distinctly American phenomenon. Um, it has its benefits and it has its disadvantages that we'll kind of talk about as we get there. Um, but the biggest thing is, there isn't any particular mechanism for guaranteeing healthcare to anyone for the entire spectrum of healthcare services. So, what I mean by that is, we do at least have some basic safety net, uh, even if it's something as simple as the IMTALA Act. So, IMTALA, um, which was a law that only came into action in 1986, is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, which is a fancy way of saying that we don't let people just die in the streets. If you come into an emergency department, and there is a specific definition for what really counts as an emergency department, but if you come into an ED and think you're having a medical emergency, even if you can't pay, even if you're an undocumented immigrant, even if you tell us flat out you're going to dine and dash and leave as soon as you get treatment, we are obligated by law to at least examine you to see if you're having a medical emergency. And if we find one, we're obligated to stabilize you before we discharge you. Okay. So it's... Anyone can at least receive that bare minimum of health care. But beyond that, there really isn't anything that says, okay, now that you've come in and you've had this horrible condition, I'm going to see you in the office next week and we'll talk about making some changes to your medicines, or I'm going to do some tests to find out why this happened to help keep it from happening again. No one's really obligated to do any of that and it outside would be, of an
0: emergency. it would be... Counterintuitive to do that in the, in our particular system because what you're trying to do there is just simply deal with the emergency. Correct. You're not trying to deal with because since they don't have healthcare, you're not trying to deal with the long term, like ramifications
1: necessarily well, you, you of like their, their behavior. I mean, you may not be able to if yeah. they're if they're not willing. Well, I guess if they're unable to pay for yeah. the non-emergent test down the line, if I exactly. say, hey, come to clinic next week and we can talk about your cholesterol or we can talk about you know this inflammatory condition you have that might have led to your heart attack or something like that. Yeah. If they don't have the money for a copay for that office visit, let alone for the hundreds and thousands of dollars of tests that it would be to pay out of pocket, they it's not that they don't want to, they exactly. cannot come to that appointment. Yeah,
0: they can't, yeah. So, so do you think, it, would you say... Okay, so I would guess in 1986, the debate around that particular action was largely compassion. Like, we don't want people dying, not receiving emergency. Like, if I have a gunshot, I shouldn't, you know, have to walk into the emergency room and be like, okay, well, let's verify your uh, health care before we get right. you in the OR, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The bullet out or whatever. Yeah, um, you don't pay up front in advance. Yeah, exactly.
1: Not true for every country, by the way.
0: That's not true for every country?
1: Um, so... You know, some of my colleagues trained in India. Okay. And, you know, one of the cardiologists who came over to the U.S. said, in India, when we do a heart cath and look for blockages in the arteries around someone's heart, if we find one, we take off our gloves and our gown, we walk out of the OR and talk to the family and say, um, they have a blockage that needs a stent. It will be, let's say, $10,000. And then they collect their fee and they go in and they put in the stent. Wow. And the fact of the matter is those things aren't cheap. Someone has to pay for it. We would run out otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that's the solution that that particular hospital would take.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Interesting.
0: Wow. Well, in 1986, it seems like we were having conversations about people in emergency situations, not Mm -hmm. receiving the care that they required and life being lost because of that. Right. Which to me seems like I'm always on the side of life um, being prolonged if possible, like being, mm-hmm. being continued if possible. And it seems like whatever, you know, all the details of that particular policy, I don't know, but it seems like it was coming from a place of compassion, from a place of trying to to meet a need, from a place of trying to, you know, um, address, uh, what I would guess is, you know, a concern that yeah. there was probably some documentation of people who had, had, had died because they didn't mm-hmm. have the care they needed. And maybe there were were people there prepared to give them the care, but because of some of the legalities of how the insurance went through or whatever, they, they didn't go ahead and provide that care. Mm-hmm. With that said, do you think that particular policy um, is one of the things that has led to where we're at now, as far as like the complication of, cause I feel like oh, some yes. of the complication becomes, a conversation of responsibility versus compassion mm-hmm. and I think we have this I would actually say we have a large uh, an overarching problem of an unhealthy um, you know we'll just leave it to our country like the United States is you know obese unhealthy lacks you know like it, just all the markers there seem to be pretty clear uh on on our diets and stuff like that, things that we could probably do that would, would better ourselves um, when it comes to like our personal responsibility. Right. Cause right. that's always the conversation between personal responsibility and, 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 and compassion. I guess what I'm saying is in 86, when that happened, would you say that is occupying, Twenty-five percent of the complication, fifty percent of the complication, like and maybe it's hard to put a metric to it, but it's I'm just six percent. What was that? It's six percent. Six percent. Six percent. Six percent of the yeah, the, the complication right. <laughs> is that. Wow. Explain that six percent. What do you mean so,
1: by that? So six percent of a hospital's cost is in uncompensated care. Okay. So the snag with mtala is it's essentially an unfunded mandate. It says I specifically have to treat a patient who comes into the ER even if they can't pay, even if they've never had any intention of paying. And if they do, uh, that's great. You know, we get compensated, but it's probably not fair for the patient who had to pay out of pocket and didn't have an insurance company to negotiate for them. But if they don't, we say, well, that's charity work and we write it off. And I, I don't know the metrics for my specific hospital, but nationwide, the number 6% has been quoted. 6%. Now, that being said, while that is a major factor in the cost of delivering healthcare, there's another more insidious element to it that's a little bit harder to quantify. Okay. Um, and that is it's it's a lot more expensive to treat an emergency than to prevent it. Yeah, And if we only mandate emergency care, that probably isn't the most cost-effective way of keeping people healthy. And I'll give an example from my own specialty in cardiology. The quintessential emergency for which people come to an ER could be a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And a specific type of heart attack called a STEMI is one where we generally try to go in and fix a blocked artery within 90 minutes of the patient hitting a door. Um, And we've gotten pretty good. We've gotten that less than an hour in most cases. Uh, If we don't do that, permanent damage can occur to the heart, and they can be left with debilitating heart failure for the rest of their life. Mm. So it's, A, it's the number one cause of death in the U.S., heart disease, more than all forms of cancer combined. And B, once it's been recognized in this particular setting, there are literally minutes to act on it before it becomes permanent so having said that a patient who comes in with a heart attack gets the full court press they get an ekg within minutes of hitting the door to check their heart's electrical activity they get blood work to check for heart enzymes based on the ekg they may go directly to a catheterization lab a type of operating room where under x-ray guidance we bring wires up into the heart and open up a balloon to basically open a blockage that's formed in the heart um, if we don't do that then all of the heart tissue downstream of that blockage dies within hours mm. so that being said, these things don't just come out of nowhere, and it, it isn't for no reason at all that that's the leading cause of death in US, but not most other countries in the world. Um, and that's that most people who have coronary artery disease, not all, but most of them have certain risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, most infamously diabetes, and mm. some of these things, if recognized and treated in advance, could prevent or delay or decrease the severity of heart attacks. So. Let's take the example that this patient's a diabetic. Um, People with diabetes, the number one cause of death among them is heart disease. Mm. Um, Part of that is because of the inflammation of the blood vessels, the tendency to build up these atheromas, collections of plaque inflammatory cells that can eventually rupture and cause a complete blockage in the heart. Um, But we know that you're more likely to have that happen if you've had uncontrolled blood sugar. So let's wind the clock back and take this patient and actually put them in an office instead, maybe 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. If their diabetes was recognized and treated, it could be that with a simple, maybe $4 a month medication, we could keep them healthy to the point that they didn't come into the hospital and have a $10,000 heart attack. And that's just putting in the stent. That's just the one procedure that immediately stops the imminent life threat. It does not include their stay in the ICU or all the tests that are performed or the medications that they receive. It doesn't cover the salary of the physician or the nurses or the therapists who take care of them in the hospital. Mm. It's not uncommon for people without insurance to be utterly impoverished by a single visit to the hospital. Yeah. So when these patients can't see doctors and have these routine conditions like hypertension, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes treated, they at least know they can go to the ER when they've gone out of control for years and years. Um, so here's what, I guess this is actually the crux of the argument for universal health care in the U.S. If that patient comes into the ER and under EMTALA, receives the treatment needed to save their life Mm -hmm. if they aren't able to pay for it then the hospital is out that you know twenty thirty thousand dollar bill the way you make up for it is by raising everyone else's prices to compensate for it yeah so whether people like it or not they are paying for other people's health care yeah whether we like it or not when people come in and aren't getting insurance we pick up the bill for them Mm -hmm. not we meaning the medical society and hospitals we meaning patients and providers Mm So the question is, if we have to pay out of our pockets to some degree for other people's health care, would it be reasonable to pay for it when it's actually cheaper in a way to prevent these emergencies from happening? Wouldn't it make more sense if we paid for them to get their medicines that kept them from having the heart attack? Um, And then A, they don't have a heart attack, which I think in and of itself should be a laudable goal. Yeah. But B, you've also decreased the cost of their care.
0: Yeah. Therefore, you've also decreased the the hit that it's going to have against you. Exactly. Like even if you want to think of it from a selfish standpoint, like just about yourself, like it could be that universal healthcare would actually decrease the portion that you're responsible for. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay.
1: Now the tricky thing about that is um, let's take, let's take diabetes and heart attacks, for example, from the time we would diagnose a patient with diabetes, it's often, you know, somewhere between five and even 20 years. When they might have a heart attack as a complication from it. So what that means is, if today we gave insurance to everyone in the country with diabetes, we wouldn't be reaping the benefits of that for years and years down the line. These aren't effects that take place overnight. Yeah. I mean, 20 years is you know three presidents later. Yeah. So people would long earlier than that <laughs> christen that particular policy a failure because now we've just paid more to take care of these people and haven't gotten the benefits yet. Yeah. Um, there's a few other reasons why that's not a miraculous fix, but that's one of the big ones. Mm. Um, so it's the other thing about it is with with MTA specifically, let's focus on that for a little bit more. In maybe the 20 years following that law coming into effect, um, emergency department visits increased by 25%. And interestingly enough, over 500 emergency departments closed. Wow. And there are many large reputable hospitals that have decided we're not going to label ourselves as an emergency facility or we're not going to advertise having a trauma service or we're going to somehow limit the services that we can offer so as not to find ourselves, you know, under the effects of this particular law. Yeah. And there's a lot of insidious ways that people can sneakily do that, but it's not an uncommon strategy, and there are also some hospitals that simply could not afford to keep up with that.
0: Yeah. Would an urgent care facility be under the same mandate as MTALA, or does it depend on urgent care?
1: Um, having never worked in urgent care, I'm not quite sure. that okay. It's a fairly recent phenomenon. The yeah, I was going to say, I, and I was
0: wondering if those came about as a go-between that maybe weren't, you know, I, they, I didn't know if they kind of reasoning.
1: They came up partly to decongest emergency departments. Exactly, yeah. And the thing about it is MTALA requires me to do an examination and stabilize an emergency, but that's about it. But the fact of the matter is if you come to the ER because you have a stuffy nose, I'm still required to do a full exam, make sure you're not having an emergency. And if I find a problem in the setup of that exam, I, I, I'd kind of be a jerk not to treat it. Yeah. And at the very least, I would have some legal liability on me. So many people go to emergency departments for routine care knowing they can't be turned away even if if it's for something that probably shouldn't justify an emergency room yeah. visit.
0: Okay, we can circle back yeah. to Mtala. You just said a word that I think is really important. Two words: legal liability.
1: <laughs> so, so
0: one of the things I wonder, Ooh. and and I know, and I know, you know, feel free to talk where you can talk and where you yeah. can't talk or what you can't reference, but like we live in a sue happy culture. Yes. The moment something happens to me. I'm going to, you know, consider the ways in which I can, you know, maybe sue somebody and and um and, you know, reap the benefit from that. Whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's I don't think you have to go too far to see that that's the reality of our culture and it yeah. seems like that I'm curious how much you think that plays into the cost of our healthcare and the complications within our healthcare because I do know in any profession you're going to have a certain amount of um mistakes errors um uh the surgery is not always going to go the way it was supposed to go uh Mm -hmm. the the physician isn't always going to do it perfect you know and that's uh, that's just the reality of the situation and so at what point is the physician liable because maybe they Mm -hmm. weren't in the right state of mind weren't in the right framework whatever that you know looks Mm -hmm. like to to um to provide the care that they said they were gonna provide, right? So there are, I, I think, you know, um, there's probably certain cases where I would be like, wow, it seems like that doctor, you know, did something wrong and needed mm-hmm. to be sued for that, right? Like, I don't know, I, um, but it seems like hospitals nowadays are really, really, really um, having to consider legal matters and oh, yeah. invest a lot of money in that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to how that has affected healthcare costs, how that's affected coverage costs? Because I got to yeah, believe a surgery in 1980 and a surgery today, obviously, the technological advances have have probably made that cost skyrocket. But then mm-hmm. also, I do think some of the legal ramifications of where we're at. In that.
1: Yeah, it's so that one's also pretty tough to say, because it's not as simple as looking into. How much do we spend on malpractice insurance? How much time do we spend defending from lawsuits? You know, how many lawyers do we have to retain? It's everything we do in medicine comes with some notion in the back of our minds of, you know, is this going to put me at some liability? And it's not our number one concern by a long shot. If it comes down to two courses of action, which are equally valid, generally, most physicians will pick the safer one. Yeah. Not necessarily safer for the patient, although that's number one concern, but- you know safer for us as well sure so let's suppose we have a patient in the emergency department and you know they come in with let's say they come in with chest pain now chest pain can be the first sign of a heart attack and if the patient is a 65 year old male with a history of diabetes and hypertension and three prior heart attacks um I'm going to have a very high suspicion that it's heart pain. Mm-hmm. We're going to get our EKG and our cardiac enzymes. And if the first blood work is negative, I'll get it two more times to be sure. Um, but it's a little bit of a different story if the patient is a 15 year old girl or a 15 year old man and they come in saying, yeah, it hurts right here when I take a deep breath, but that's the place where I got you know hit with a football the other day and it's kind of bruised. I probably am not going to treat them extensively for a heart attack. Mm-hmm. But I am probably going to at least get an EKG, an electrocardiogram, to say that I looked for a heart attack. Yeah. Even though I think the likelihood of it happening is practically negligible, and and even if I think it's more likely, I'm going to find something meaningless that scares people and causes psychological distress than the chances of me actually finding a heart problem. Mm. Um. So actually, it's kind of convenient that I randomly came up with a, a teenage athlete because if um if i were to do an ekg that test on you know a healthy teenager there's a good chance I would find some subtle variations, which in an adult could signify a heart problem. Mm. Um, and we've studied these extensively. There's an entire volume of literature on, quote, the athletic heart syndrome. Um, some of those kids end up getting stress tests. Some get, you know, even more workup afterwards. Some get echocardiograms, tests that can be in the thousands of dollars. And the whole time they're panicking oh, man, am I going to lose my scholarship to college? Am I going to be able yeah. to play football? A-, a lot of psychological distress. Am I going to die? That's sure. a concern eventually. Yeah. Um, and it's probably gonna be for nothing. Hmm. And there is significant harm to looking for things that probably aren't there. Hmm. But one of the reasons why many physicians choose to do that is because if they are the zero point zero zero one percent who actually has a serious heart problem and it was just a coincidence that they happen to have this, you know, rib pain, yeah, you know, they wouldn't want to be sued over that. Yeah. And the sad reality is, you know, we could put hundred patients through harrowing psychological distress and that doesn't have as much consequence to it as missing the one patient with the bizarre diagnosis that no one has any business looking for yeah so Mm. this general practice referred to as defensive medicine quote unquote means ordering tests or you know performing examinations that probably aren't going to go anywhere but are necessary to protect the physician from liability and there have been many efforts to try and tell exactly how much money goes into that. It, it's hard to say for sure, and it definitely varies from state to state. Okay. Um, and a lot of what people consider as the threshold for too much or too little testing is partly based on state uh, laws regarding malpractice. Um, okay. So some states like Texas put a cap on, quote, you know, non-medical expenses that can be recovered in a malpractice suit. So people can't say, you know, I had such psychological distress, I deserve $10 million because of it in emotional damages or something like that. Um, Some states say, no, no, you get paid in relation to the actual harm that was done to you. And there are different statutes of limitations. Like, I believe in Pennsylvania, you know, you have two years from the discovery of an accident to file a suit against it. Otherwise it goes away. Okay. So, you know, if I suddenly discover the cure for cancer tomorrow and strike it rich patients from five years ago, can't start saying, Oh, you know what? Now that I think about it, I've been having a lot of back pain since that doctor did my heart cath or something yeah. like that. <laughs> you know, there is, there is a limit on how <laughs> recently people can dig up skeletons in the closet. I so to speak. Wow. Um, not all States agree on that. And some lean more towards physician rights and some lean more towards patients. So depending on where you are and what those laws are, that informs to some degree how much, quote, defensive medicine yeah. is practiced.
0: If you had to guess, what do you think the percentages of what a hospital is budget is allocating toward? legal fees Oof. slash settlement fees because oh, i know a lot of times hospitals will settle without even going to court because it's just easier like
1: kind of yeah in some it's,
0: situations like just like businesses and corporations will do that like
1: i'm, I'm not really are you sure. thinking like
0: one percent two percent more I, like, I
1: i probably more but the thing is it's not just the actual amount of payments that are made it, it's something it's the as mindset as, that
0: shifts too right because the yes. mindset has kind of shifted from providing care for this individual to also providing care and now that defensive medicine that you've talked about, right?
1: Right. So it's, a lot of it is even things like documentation requirements. Okay. Like we have to, many hospitals have what they call a pre-op timeout or checklist where they go through and remind themselves, this is the correct patient. They're getting this procedure. We're operating on this side, et cetera, et cetera and the sheer volume of paperwork is overwhelming part of it is just for the sake of defending against liability now we do know that things like pre-op checklists do improve patient outcomes yes yeah but i don't need to fill out a form that says which side i'm operating on if i'm doing something like an electrical cardioversion i'm shocking the heart you only have one you don't have a left and a right heart yeah (laughs) you know i can't i can't really miss with this (laughs) procedure it's good to know it's the right patient and the right procedure but there's a lot of boxes that people check on a regular basis that probably aren't applicable to that specific setting but it's better to have more documentation than less documentation.
0: So Sue Happy Culture in your mind makes the top ten list of complicating our healthcare system or doesn't? Um Or even the top five list. We'll say top five.
1: I don't know if it makes the top five, to okay. be honest. Okay. Top ten might be reasonable, but it's very few physicians would admit, you don't need this test, I'm getting it to protect myself. Gotcha. So if I were to pull all of the physicians in you know, the hospital and say, hey, how much do you think you order things that you don't need to order, but it makes you feel better? They're going to say 0%. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, that may differ from what you actually see if you were to go through their charts one by one, but it's it's very subtle. It's very deeply ingrained from mm-hmm. early on in our training. Uh, it's kind of hard to tease out what we do because it's the right thing to do for the patient and what we do because... You know we don't want to get sued and I, and I say that like it's an us versus them mentality but the best thing for the patient is to have access to a doctor in a hospital in the first place yeah. if there's a lawsuit that shuts the doors of the hospital that will hurt every patient who would have come for their care it's not only the physicians who benefit from avoiding these malpractice suits mm-hmm. um but that's trickier to do than it sounds because you know when you were introducing the subject you were describing you know, a physician making a mistake or something going wrong yeah. in surgery. But, you know, that's not usually what triggers a lawsuit. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was uh, there was some data that recently came out relevant to cardiology specifically. Uh, two thirds of cardiologists have been sued at some point in their practice. Whoa. I don't think that two thirds of cardiologists are bad doctors. And they looked at the reasons why it happened, and 75% of the physicians who were sued said, we don't even know where this came from. I can't think of a specific event or anything I did to this patient. Wow. Um, I think less than 11% said, oh, yeah, I deserve this. This is on me. <laughs> huh. um, the majority of those were either settled out of court or found in favor of the physician. Uh, something like less than 10% went to trial and were found in favor of the patient. And that's true across most specialties. It is, It is quite uncommon for a medical malpractice case to go to trial and ultimately the patient receives, you know, uh, rather the plaintiff, I should say, receives a favorable ruling. Um, now, I, I only have the data for my specialty in my state, but that seems to be the trend from at least the discussions I've had with colleagues. Sure. And a lot of it is because it's difficult, especially in something as complicated as medicine, to find the root cause of a bad outcome all of these things involve some bad outcomes. Someone is paralyzed or killed or has a, an accident during surgery or is prescribed the wrong medicine or given the wrong diagnosis. Uh, you know, it doesn't just come out of nowhere, but the question of does this constitute malpractice is one that can be tricky to answer. And so malpractice actually is not a criminal offense. When someone brings forth a malpractice suit, it is a civil offense. And so there's a few implications for that. One is, Unlike in a court of criminal law, where the basis for a conviction is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, yeah. you know, we in our criminal justice system have decided we would rather let 10 guilty people go free than put one innocent person in prison. Not sure. true for every country, but it's a principle in which the U.S. is based. But with the civil suit, the basis for a ruling in favor of the plaintiff or the defendant, there is no guilt or innocence, sure. is a preponderance of evidence, which could mean 51% of the evidence says the doctor made a mistake. Yeah. The other thing about it is there are a few elements that are necessary to say that a physician um, has committed malpractice, which is considered a form of negligence. That's the, the statute, if you will, mm-hmm. on which malpractice is tried. Um, to be guilty of malpractice, and again, I use the G word, but not quite what it means here. Sure. Um, there has to be some standard of care. There has to be some deviation from that standard. Someone has to have had a negative outcome from it. And you had to have had to, you have to point to some proximal cause, something that resulted from that deviation of standard of care that led to that bad outcome. Yeah. So let's suppose, for example, a patient comes in with a heart attack. We take them to the cath lab, we put in a stent and open the vessel. And then the next day, the patient, um, they have a a, a hole develop in their heart, it ruptures and they pass away. Mm. Uh, That is a known complication for heart attacks that are often delayed in presentation. Uh, ones that don't come within the first six hours or so sometimes have that happen. It's something that we know happens with heart attacks. We watch for it, but sometimes we can't prevent it. And often one of the first signs is a catastrophic collapse and the patient may not survive. If we did everything right, even though the patient died of a disease we were treating, we have not necessarily committed malpractice. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if we go in and do a procedure and we put in a stent, but we accidentally put the stent a little bit further down into the artery than we wanted to, but it still works. The vessel is open and the patient leaves the hospital just fine. Even though there was quote, a mistake made, there is no malpractice because there was no harm. And additionally, there isn't necessarily a deviation from standard of care if it happened for a reason that was understandable and would have maybe caused that problem for any reasonable doctor in that setting. Hmm. So, What often happens is when patients or their family members have a bad outcome, when something doesn't go the way they want, or they get a misdiagnosis, the immediate thought is somehow this is the physician's fault. But for them to have really committed malpractice, it requires a knowledge of how healthcare is practiced and how medicine works that patients do not typically have. They don't usually know what a reasonable doctor would do in that case or what information they were acting on that would have made perfect sense at the time. And only now, with the benefit of hindsight, would we have done something different. Mm. Um, And even if we even if there wasn't anything to do different, even if we would have done exactly the same thing, because what happened was not preventable. It's hard to persuade people of that. Uh, Not just a patient, but a jury as well. Yeah. And, you know, we. We talk about in the U.S. having a trial with a jury of your peers, but we don't really have juries of physicians from our practice suits. We have to explain to random people off the street how things like cardiac dysrhythmias work or how percutaneous coronary interventions function. And, you know, we can't <laughs> yeah. always... and it gets super complicated. Some med yeah, students yeah. don't grasp that. We can't expect people who just came in for jury duty to be able to figure it out.
0: Yeah. So that's a complicated piece, but from what you, from what I hear you saying... This isn't like one of the the main drivers in I, what's a, complicating our yeah, healthcare.
1: I think it's a bit overblown. Mm-hmm. Certainly it is a portion of it. Um and it it definitely contributes to costs. I don't think it's the biggest issue. Okay. Though.
0: So would you so would you put Mtala, the nineteen eighty six emergency room, you know, uh, reality as one of the top five? That's complicated.
1: Well, I, I think MTA is absolutely necessary, and I'm not on a platform of repeal MTA. No, 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 and no, let no, People die I, I'm, again. <laughs> I'm more saying. I, I'm more saying. <laughs> yeah. Do you think
0: the the effects of that, which by the way, are not all just negative. Yes. Like they're positive. People yes. haven't died. People have received the emergency care they need. Mm-hmm. Um, what I guess I'm saying is, has that complicated our healthcare system further? Because now you have certain people saying this is creating costs over here. It's creating, I
1: don't know. It, It definitely plays a role. And if not, if not that specific act in itself, the general notion that everyone deserves some minimal level of healthcare by necessity leads to cost. Yeah. And that cost may be worth it in some cases. Mm-hmm. Although in the U.S. there's convincing evidence to say that not all of our costs are worth what we're getting.
0: Okay. Would you... So so I'm trying to guess okay. the top three. Sure. The top three issues. Okay. And I haven't touched on any of them yet, would you say? No, not that yet. Are, that, are, that are causing... Okay. No. Because I'm not very informed on this. So I'll just be real. <laughs> You're more informed. Would um, the privatization of hospitals and... Like, that reality have anything to do with, with the top three in your, um, in your mind?
1: Not the privatization of hospitals. Or
0: for-profit? Like
1: Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a for-profit hospital, to be honest. Okay. If you were to take all the money that the hospital spends on a daily basis and instead invest it in stocks and bonds, you would probably make more money more reliably by investing that money.
0: Really? Yes.
1: Interesting. And in fact, there are a good number of hospitals, I don't, I'm gonna drop any specific names, but where a sizable portion of their surplus goes towards investing in things completely unrelated to their delivery of healthcare services, because that's a responsible use of money that yields returns and keeps them from going broke. Mm. And it's a better question to say if they have the ability to use that money so effectively, why are they spending any of it providing health care at all? Yeah. It is not the most profitable use of money. It's not a good investment. Um, and the answer, which should be pleasant, is I, I think they are doing the right thing. I yeah. think there are hospitals, most hospitals, in fact, recognize the specific role they play to society and that they have certain obligations to provide excellent healthcare for mm-hmm. individuals, whether they're capable of affording it or not. And that that is the ultimate goal as opposed to the bottom line. Okay. Good. And it's it's different than how some businesses are run. Yeah. And I think a lot of people look at healthcare as if it is the same to of business as, you know, a company that makes beer, but it's not you know, we aren't making a product to sell, we're trying to genuinely improve people's lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you yeah, know, that's... Okay,
0: okay. So instead of me trying to guess, and my other yeah. guess would probably be something with the pharmaceutical industry. I mm-hmm. don't know if that... We're getting warmer there. Getting warmer there? We're getting okay. warmer
1: there. All right, maybe. Okay, so... so We'll touch on that. But if you want to... Give me your top three okay. of, like,
0: what's complicating our current healthcare uh, reality. And again, I just want to bring this back to, like, the the reality of this is you have some people right now who are considering, you know... Who who are faces and, and and personalities that have policies that could really transform our healthcare mm-hmm. industry uh, potentially to um, to a you know universal uh, healthcare <laughs> system similar to and they and they and they've modeled some of those similar to some of the countries you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um, and there's also um, you know uh, a more like let's I don't know it doesn't seem like it seems like there's there's a more conservative approach, not trying to get binary with conservative and and progressive, but more like um, there are ways to reform this in a different in a different way. And what I'm trying to get at is before we kind of break off those two paths, I want to make sure we we recognize, or you know, listeners can recognize, here's the top problems that need to be solved, mm-hmm. um, and then we can maybe say so what universal healthcare does to solve that problem is this. What a different kind of continuing on in our same path or, you know, uh, would, would, would do this. I mean, does, does that make sense? Yes. That, but, but I want to identify the problem before we kind of get talking. Because one of the things I think that's interesting about healthcare is like if you turn on the news, whether it's Fox or, or, or CNN or MSNBC or any of those, you, you turn it on and they're like, we're going to have a debate about healthcare. And then they come back, they have four panelists and they give them 10 minute, like a 10 minute segment. And it's like, yeah. it's like you and I have only just touched the surface and oh, yeah. we've been talking for a while. And it's like, rarely do those conversations actually get to identify the roots of like how complicated this is and how many moving parts there are. And then when you make policy change, how many people are legitimately affected by that and how many systems have to, Change and transform, and how long that can take for those systems to mm-hmm. to you know adapt to the new reality. And yeah. so, so yeah. So, give me your top three, and then we'll <laughs> go from there. Maybe I'll have some follow up questions as you go through what you think the top three things that are complicating our healthcare reality are.
1: All right, I would say the number one factor complicating U.S. healthcare is the prevalence of obesity and. Uh, lifestyle interventions Mm. Um, it is it's not a coincidence that one of the countries one of the developed nations with the highest obesity rate also has the highest rate of heart disease and it's not a coincidence that most of the people who smoke cigarettes for example are dying of that heart disease as well and it's a little bit weird that not to go too far down this rabbit hole but of the things in this country that are illegal smoking tobacco is not Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if we banned the sale of tobacco and people actually stopped using it, we would close entire wards of the hospital within years. Really? Seriously. Wow. Um, So I would say smoking and obesity, those two things, the the two biggest risk factors that we deal with in this country. Um, And we can talk a bit about obesity. That's also a whole TED talk in its own. Yeah. Um, But generally speaking... Being obese or overweight, which two thirds of Americans are, is probably one of the leading preventable risk factors for the, at least the top two, if not the top three, leading causes of death in the U.S. Um, and most of the, most of the money that we spend in the U.S. healthcare system is treating the complications of those conditions. Hmm. Um, so that's number one. I think that if we were able to get on top of that problem, we would see costs vanish over a generation.
0: What I just heard you say was the policies or things that would need to change, though, mm-hmm. are not necessarily related to the health care No, of course field. not. Yeah. So, like, the type of food that we allow mm-hmm. people to consume. And, I mean, obviously, we, we are pretty, like... Uh, you know, libertarians would be listening to this, being like, "You could consume whatever kind of food you want, you know what I mean?" Sure, um, sure. And that's fine until we have things like amtala, which allow mm. those people who've consumed anything they want to be able to receive care. Does you see what I'm trying to say? Like, uh-huh. and how many people actually know the risk of what they're consuming? They don't. To that? They have no like, idea. <laughs> like that, like consumer <laughs> like, education and that kind of stuff. That's the that's the other thing. How many yes. people know? Oh, wow. Hold on. You mean I'm? I knew overweight wasn't good, but I didn't realize it meant that like my likelihood of how I'm going to die is going to be likely this way because of like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like I, I don't, I don't. And then other people, you know, there's also just the reality of like childhood obesity and like, this yes. is, this is a lifestyle you grew up yes. in. This is a way. And now like reprogramming the way you eat, the way you are, how active you are, uh, man, that, that's a, that's a hard reality to, to just flip a light switch and shift. Right. Right. I mean, what I'm hearing you say though, is like the number one problem with the healthcare industry or the number one leading cause of like higher costs and and, and what's complicating everything is affected by policies around substances like, Mm -hmm. like tobacco Mm -hmm. is affected around how we eat, how active we are as a culture, what, what families are handing down for lifestyles to their children. Like these are all things that by the way, universal healthcare may not even address or, or, or could address, but may not like, does does that make sense? Yes.
1: So to, to boil it down to a very simple bullet point, the leading cause of healthcare costs is too much disease. And so if you want to make healthcare costs less, have fewer diseases. And I'm sure everyone's thinking, oh, that's, I didn't think of that. I'll just, (laughs) I'll just have less diseases. I didn't know I had a choice in the matter. But the truth is we live in such a privileged country where most of the things we die of can be prevented now again there are certain conditions where people are just sore out of luck you know i mentioned coronary disease specifically as being a condition heavily affected by lifestyle choices but it's also affected by genetics and if people have something like familial hyperlipidemia where they just happen to have high levels of cholesterol and fats in their blood, they get heart disease earlier, more severely, no matter what they do in terms of their usual risk factor modification. Their diet and exercise can be flawless and they can drop dead of a heart attack. Yeah, That is always going to happen because nothing is fair. But most people can do something to at least reduce their risk, even if it's not necessarily enough to keep them out of the risk category entirely.
0: Okay. Can we do a PSA here? If I'm listening to this, and I'm feeling like, oh, man, I fall into that category. What would be your elevator speech for what someone should do um, if, if they're obese or if they're, you know, if they're feeling <laughs> those risks, those risk factors? What would you? I would and say. I don't know if, I'm not that I'm trying to tell you to give people medical advice. Let's sure just be thing. clear disclaimer here. Right. Right. But lifestyle advice. I right?
1: would say a priori, the most important things anyone can do for themselves are stop smoking. Don't drink excessively. And if you if you think you're eating enough, you're probably eating too much. Mm. Um, I think people would be astonished if they tracked carefully and sincerely just how much they're eating. If you go to a restaurant and order nothing but an appetizer and a dessert, at most chain restaurants, that will put you over your daily caloric expenditure. That's more calories than you should have all day, and you haven't even had the entree yet. It is horrifying just how easy it is to overeat in America Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people don't realize that you know everything down to the ketchup packets has calories in it yeah and you know I was I was at an airport one time and I got a you know there was I was looking at the the, one of the food stands that they had and they had muffins and it said on the back you know 100 calories I said oh that's not much and then the serving size was a third of a muffin (laughs) and I'm like no one buys a muffin with the intention of eating one third of a muffin. So I would teach people learn how to read the the label on the nutrition facts yeah. and realize just how much you're eating because it's not just the big number that's highlighted in the top yeah. left corner.
0: And again, we're talking about a factor like which I do think there is like legislation being pushed to mm-hmm. change the, the nutrition facts like so that you can so that so that it's more clear. It's, it reflects
1: what people actually eat, not what they're supposed to eat. Exactly. And that's the idea. Exactly. It. And so. But like,
0: again, we're talking about a policy uh-huh. that's not related to the universal health care conversation, no. but would have huge, could potentially have huge implications on someone's health, right? Well,
1: it's actually kind of interesting that you say that, because one of the most pleasant improvements in the honesty with which restaurants advertise their caloric content uh, came from Obamacare. Really? So the Affordable Care Act has a clause that not a lot of people knew about at first. One of the requirements that really only just met full effect last year was that chain restaurants must disclose the nutrition facts of items on their menu. Hmm. And you might have noticed around between... I have noticed. Yes. In the last five years, most chain restaurants on the menu list the calories in that particular dish. And before that, it was often a carefully guarded secret. And, you know, sometimes they'd have a binder in the back room. And if you asked for it, they'd bring it out, mostly for the purpose of making sure you're not allergic to any ingredients. But there were a lot of places where no one could tell you how many calories are really in that milkshake. And even now, it's it's a stark contrast when you go to, you know, a, a small non-chain restaurant and you're curious about you know how many calories are in that slice of cheesecake, no one even knows. Yeah. Um, and on average, it's probably about 600 if you're talking about calories in one slice of cheesecake. Yeah. Which is about a quarter of your total daily intake. Yeah. Um, So in recognition of the fact that many of our costs come from too many preventable diseases, one really cool thing about the Affordable Care Act was targeting that specific problem. Now, it assumes that people know how many calories they're supposed to be getting and are sufficiently motivated to keep track of it. But at the very least, people who want to make that choice have the tools to do so now.
0: People who have been educated and know that hold on a thousand calories, this is half my calories for today or whatever, are able to, to like say huh, maybe I'll take half of that, or maybe I
1: won't have that, and I'll pick something else. Exactly. So that's what I would recommend. And it's, there are so many ways that people have gone about dressing up the issue of obesity. Oh, I have a slow metabolism. Oh, I have this or that problem. Or, oh, I just stand around. I just sit around. I don't do a lot of exercise. It's not the food. It's pretty much always the food. Mm. Um, So we regularly do studies in cardiology where we place people in metabolic units where we can actually see how many calories their body burns just by sitting around doing nothing, their basal metabolic rate. And we have sick patients in the ICU. We have tiny, frail, old grandmothers. We have never found an adult patient whose body burns fewer than 1,000 calories a day. So when someone tells me I'm eating nothing and not losing weight, they are violating the laws of thermodynamics. Mm. You are always burning something and if you if you take in less than you burn, you get smaller. Now, that may not show up on the scale because water can easily come and go, yeah. but it's there is no one who is biologically unable to lose weight. If they reduce their intake enough, now some people will reduce their intake to the point where they end up having other issues. They're not getting the micronutrients, vitamins, and minerals. It can be genuinely dangerous for some individuals, yeah. but there there is no condition where we can't work around that by partnering with your healthcare provider to make changes. No one no one is doomed to be a current weight if they wanted mm. to change. Yeah, um, it does it, take a lot of discipline. because
0: yes. one thing I'll say is. I being having a weight loss journey of my own, mm-hmm. I was 280 pounds at one point, and like, um, I mean, for me personally, CrossFit's been a huge part of that. And the fitness was the first thing, but then I realized like, you can't out fitness a bad diet. Nope. Like, you know, you hear about Michael Phelps like working out so much that he can eat 10,000 calories, but it's still 10,000 good calories because <laughs> because yeah, yeah. you know because he's got you know at that, at that point in his career or whatever, like he was doing so much work preparing for the Olympics. But I I look at it and I say like, it really becomes the struggle of changing habits. Yeah. And then it becomes the struggle of realizing that like the game is kind of geared against you. Like, Mm -hmm. I hate to say it that way, but like there's certain places I just have to avoid now. Yeah, Like I just, I, I have some hard and fast rules now. Like, and I know that's, I, I'm, a, I'm also my personality personally is a little more like an all or nothing personality so like if I have the bad meal today I'm gonna crave it way more tomorrow <laughs> like so it's not like that I can just eat real healthy all week and just look forward to that bad meal that cheat meal on Saturday like because if I have that cheat meal I'll want to overdo it even the next day so mm-hmm. that's my that, I've learned that about myself but I've also learned that like there's few places that are really geared toward health. Like even your healthier options, like like Chipotle, for example, is maybe a healthier option. Well, here's the deal: the amount of carbs that are in all that rice, that are in all that, like you know what I mean? The amount of yeah. the amount of calories even in a burrito bowl. Like let's say you get a bowl. There's the healthier option. I'm getting the bowl. Like the amount of calories, like. And not to pick on Chipotle, I'm just saying like, even our healthier options are still Americanized options. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Like we, we would, when you do go to Europe or these other countries, like, and you realize how, how small the portions are, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I, f- I got to go back and get seconds or I got to, yeah, you know, cause you're like, you're just, you're not used to it. Like, you know, right. you're not used to how, how different, uh, people eat in other places and how, mm-hmm. how different the portion sizes are. So even when we are eating healthy, we're typically overeating in the healthy realm, which is still getting that caloric intake to a place. So it's taken me a long time to learn to eat healthy first, but then also to be like, okay, but I also have to like not eat as much
1: even when I am eating And and that's the secret that people don't often pick up on. They think that there are healthy foods and unhealthy foods. And if they eat the healthy foods, they become healthier. And that's just an oversimplification for the reasons you specified. You know, a thousand calories of carbs versus a thousand calories of fat versus a thousand calories of protein will all lead to energy storage as fat if taken in excess. Now, there's differences in how filling they are yeah. and in how long they rev up your metabolism, your thermic effects of food, your non-activity, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. You know, there there is some difference. It's not all just a calorie is a calorie, but any calorie can be a bad calorie if it's mm-hmm. too much. Um, so I often tell patients who struggle with this, buy a kitchen scale and look at what the serving size is on the food you're getting. Weigh it out on the scale and see how much it is. It will be less than you think it is and keep track of it. Yeah. And it's easy now to do in the age of apps like MyFitnessPal yep. or Lose It. all these things. And if you find that you're not losing weight, it's probably just, you know, water can come in where fat goes out. Over time, it tends to equilibrate. You know, keep tracking over the span of weeks to months to see the effects. Small fluctuations happen every day. People need to stick with it be honest about what they're taking in and log diligently and that that does not usually fail
0: yeah my fitness pal is a great tool for like a lot of people track their macros Mm -hmm. like like, you know do you track macros or have you ever done that before yes yes okay what do you what so so tell people your personal routine for like eating well you're you're so connected to this (laughs) well I guess what I would say is I would say like some some people what I've learned is like if this is your specialty like you've You've seen both sides of this, right? Like you've seen mm-hmm. the extreme, unhealthy side of like where obesity leads somebody in the sense of a heart attack. Like yeah. you've seen that, um, and so you're you're with that knowledge, but also the knowledge of all of your you know education. Mm-hmm. I would just love to know what your routine is for when sure. it comes to diet.
1: Well, now my diet is. Based on the fact that I do regular resistance exercise. Yeah. Um, I'm currently trying to lose weight because I have a cruise coming up and so, you know, there's that. Gotta get that cruise body. <laughs> yeah, this nice. isn't this isn't my maintenance <laughs> routine, but it's similar. Um, so what I'm doing right now is I, I first set my calorie intake and for me maintenance would be two thousand six hundred calories. Okay. So The safest way to do it is to try and lose no more than two pounds a week, which I usually get with a 1600 calorie. So that's a thousand calorie deficit. Every 500 calories a day, you reduce equates to a loss of about one pound per week. Okay. Um, And again, more than two is pushing it. Then you're just losing muscle and causing possible harm. Um, Once I have the calorie set, I set my macros. I start with protein. Um, to minimize muscle loss during uh, a cut period, generally I would recommend 1.5 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight. Um, I use kilograms because I'm a scientist, but <laughs> if you wanted a close approximation would be a little under one gram of protein for every pound of body weight. Okay. So for me, that ends up being about you know 150 to 160 grams of protein a day, which is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And it's really hard to sneak that into 1600 calories a day. hmm so in my case, the solution I found is to make more of my food from scratch. Um, I do a lot of baking. I like my carb-like foods. Mm-hmm. I am not keto in that regard. Yeah. But what I do is I replace half the flour with a protein powder. Okay. So that can be unflavored protein powder. That can be something like um, I've been using a lot of pea plant protein extract yep. lately. That's I great use that. for making pasta. I use that. Yeah. Um, I make my own pasta, my own pizza, bagels, bread, I make brownies with that. Really? Yes. Wow. And what I do is I try and, a couple other strategies I take is I try and take out unhealthy oils and replace them with typically extra virgin olive oil, is my go-to, Okay. and I minimize the salt. And in doing that, I'm trying to unify some of the diets that have the best evidence behind them for heart disease specifically. Um, I treat enough of it that I know I don't want to get it. Yeah. Um, So the DASH diet, which is Dietary Approach to Stopping Hypertension, and the Mediterranean diet, which uh, focuses especially on healthy oils, especially extra virgin olive oils, Yeah. um, those are two that have some good evidence behind them. And the general strategy for most people is, you know, reduce the amount of sodium in your diet, if possible, to less than 2,000 milligrams a day. Um, And again, try and cut out any of the unhealthy fats Without sacrificing, um, I guess without replacing them with carbohydrates is the way of doing it. So um, wherever butter is in a recipe, I'll try and replace that with a healthier oil if possible. Sometimes I can use olive oil for that. Sometimes it doesn't quite work depending on the recipe. Um, Whenever something calls for salt, I'll try and take out as much as I can without completely Mm. destroying the taste. And I never add salt to pretty much anything. Okay. Um, So it ends up being, let me actually see what what today looked like. (laughs) so what my actual macros would be today
0: and macros if you're not familiar are just the macronutrients so carbs fat protein represent your macros and you would have a percentage of each that you're supposed to hit for the day a certain amount of grams for each and this would require you to either weigh your food or to know exactly what they are yeah
1: good all right so uh, yesterday i did kind of under eat a little i only had 1400 calories but i got Uh, 134 grams of protein 104 carbs and 47 of fat so that's that's kind of a standard-ish day for me if if not on the lower side sure um we call them macros because they're the big ones they're the ones that matter the most and they're the ones we take in in the greatest volume um but micronutrients also matter to to some lesser degree as well those are things that you have to get but Aren't necessarily the major contributing factor to your nutrition. So sure. those are your vitamins and minerals and those sorts of smaller things that, while essential, aren't the big factors. Um, so for that, I, I personally choose to take a multivitamin as a yeah. supplement. I would not recommend that for most people. Um, there are some foods that I just cannot possibly make myself eat, and I realize that. <laughs> I know that fish would be a great addition to a Mediterranean diet, but I will—you'll—I will—you'll never catch me eating fish. <laughs> really? Okay. <Yeah>. So. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of debate about whether taking fish oil has the same benefits as eating a fish. And the general consensus is it doesn't. It's better to eat the fish than to take the oil. But as a compromise, I personally choose to take fish oil. Sure. And I take a multivitamin as well because I'm not as big a fan as vegetables as I probably should be. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's that's what works for me. And the, that's best, awesome. the best diet for anyone is the diet that they're going to stick to. Yes. Any diet that has you operating in a calorie deficit, you will lose weight. Period. And if you're not losing weight, you're not in a calorie deficit. Yeah,
0: so the best thing you can do is find out what your maintenance is mm-hmm. and then find out what your, your caloric deficit to get to the weight that you would wanna be at, right? Like, right. But ultimately, this is all falling under the umbrella of personal health and disease and obesity primarily being yes. the biggest driver of what's complicating our healthcare industry. Yes. What would you say is number two? Because uh, that's definitely number one. I, right. I agree and, that's number one.
1: And I want to I roll in tobacco to that number one as well. Okay. Because even though most people, at this point in history at least, do not smoke, it is the single biggest modifiable risk factor for so many diseases.
0: Not to get on a tangent, because it could probably open one, but would yeah. you include vaping in that? Um. Or is the data just not there yet?
1: It, there is some data that it's probably... There's good data that you shouldn't put anything but air in your lungs. Exactly. That's Period. (laughs) But it's especially bad to light something on fire and put it in your lungs. Yeah. And so I do think smoking deserves a very special place in the Hall of Fame for the worst causes of disease in the world. Um, But I, I do think it is somewhat unique. And I also want to emphasize the point that the leading cause of death in smoking has nothing to do with lung disease. Everyone's afraid of lung cancer or emphysema but more smokers die of heart disease than all forms of cancer combined. Really? And so think about this for a moment. Your lungs, if you were to open them up, take them out of the chest and unfold them, Mm -hmm. would cover half a tennis court with their surface area. It's a huge amount of stuff rolled into a very compact space. Yeah. So when you take a puff of a cigarette, some of it's going off into this chamber of your lungs, some is going off to this corner. No one part of your lungs really gets hit with all of it at once. It's kind of diluted out over the whole surface area. Yeah. Conversely, all of the blood supply in the lungs converges on the left atrium. The left atrium is the upper left chamber of the heart, and all four pulmonary veins from the lungs connect to that one spot. And that spot might have a cross-sectional surface area of maybe like 11 centimeters. It's a small area, okay? 100% of the toxins that enter the bloodstream from smoking hit that spot specifically. Your heart gets all of it. And then after that, it goes through the aorta to the rest of the body, which is the reason why smoking gradually rots your blood vessels over the years, causes injury, plaque buildups, heart disease, um, heart attacks, blockages in the arteries and the legs and the arms. Um, it causes your muscles to shrivel up. It causes your organs to have decreased blood supply. Mm. Um, and that's one reason why it increases the risk of so many other cancers besides lung disease as well. But there's there's nothing in your body that doesn't suffer from it, and I I don't know if people realize that. I think people have stories about you know old grandpa who smoked and smoked and one day died of a heart attack. He never had lung cancer. No one in my family's had lung cancer. I, I hear that story so many times. <laughs> people don't realize the heart attacks are from the smoking in their family.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> so would you? What would you say to someone who came into you who's? I'll just make up a number. Forty years old, mm-hmm. and they've smoked a pack a day for so long and they want to quit, but it's so hard to quit. Do you have a method that you, not that there's one method that works for everybody, but do you have, like what do you prescribe to that person? Because sure. you're saying this is a number one. Yes, this is like, one of the this leading. This is one of the leading things. So you must
1: yeah. if, have if a I way can, of, if, exactly. you, if
0: you can get them to get off that, yes. then you can, you can really improve their health. Like yes. now, now it's about like, okay, yeah, we can treat the symptoms that you have now. Sure, but like, Ultimately, you're still putting these toxins in your body every day. So like, yeah, we can give you a pill to take on top of it, but it's not going to.
1: Right. I would say, and again, I think that's a very essential point. If I could snap my fingers and do one thing to change healthcare in the US, I would eliminate all cigarettes. Yeah. And I love
0: that. I mean, I love that from the standpoint of like, who thinks that way? Like, who's really thinking? Because it's a. it's a personal freedom situation, right? Yes. It's a like we, we saw prohibition with alcohol and what yeah, that did like exactly. like, it's like not, it, it you're going to have people smoke yeah. cigarettes no matter what like right. whether they got to make them, you know themselves or whatever but like I do think like just the sure, to know that that yeah. is such a such a huge like problem is good for people who maybe aren't aware or maybe have never dealt with smoking personally or or had family that have smoked to know, like, this is a huge problem widespread still, even though we've had a lot of reform, I think, in the last 10, 20 years in the tobacco industry, it's still there.
1: Yeah. Well, so to to go back to your question of what do what do I do? Not what would you do? This is my life, you know. Um, what I frequently do is I take kind of a three-step approach. Um, I try and support them from a behavioral standpoint by getting them connected with things like 1-800-QUIT-NOW, which is a line that people can call for you know, counseling and advice on how to quit smoking okay. and making general decisions in terms of you know, where are the situations where I tend to smoke, what are the triggers, how can I avoid that. I, I also like to reassure them by saying, you know, there is data that shows every time you quit smoking but fail to do so your chance of succeeding the next time goes up so if Hmm. you can't resist having that cigarette and you say darn it i broke my streak i was doing so well don't be discouraged it happens and the next time you try it you're actually more likely to get better so think of it as stamping your card you're not necessarily you know you didn't fail to do so you're just setting yourself up to do better next time and on average you need seven attempts before you quit smoking for good Wow, That's the number that's been quoted. Wow. So, hey, you've tried it four times. Great, you're almost there. And not everyone uses all seven. Some use more. That's the nature of how averages work. But yeah, I think people need to be reminded that every attempt to quit is helpful. Um, that's not true for everything, by the way. Alcohol is the opposite. When people try and abstain from alcohol and relapse, it actually predicts they're more likely to fail next time. Hmm. So not all habits work the same way. But smoking has that benefit that people do... Learn from experience and get better. Um, so that that collectively, the behavioral modification is one thing. The second thing is I'm going to look and see, is this anything that they're self-medicating for that I should be treating in the background? Is this a manifestation of something like depression or anxiety? Exactly. Yeah. Is this something where the treatment isn't necessarily to get them to stop smoking cold turkey, but to treat an underlying condition that they're using it for to inappropriately self-medicate? Yeah.
0: Because um, that is true. A lot of people, they've got anxiety... I mean, I know a lot of people that have that I know who have quit quit smoking. Anxiety becomes an issue. Yeah, like I can't like I'm so I'm I'm so high strung or worried about this thing because I'm not smoking because I don't have cigarettes anymore, and like it's become that thing they go to that kind of calms them. In, in in their anxious state, and you don't know what baseline is for them anymore because they've been smoking for so long. Right. So yeah. it's like you don't. It's got to be hard as a doctor to know what would I prescribe because it's hard to determine what baseline is for someone <laughs> who's smoking a pack a day. Right. <laughs> right. Wow.
1: Yeah. So um, that's that's the second point I would yeah. do is any underlying medical comorbidities. And the third point that I want to help out with is the actual physiology of nicotine addiction. Do they need something like nicotine replacement therapy? Okay. Could that be a patch or a gum or an inhaler? You know, I, I don't typically recommend e-cigarettes yeah. because they're not necessarily designed to be smoking cessation aids. They're made by the tobacco companies and yeah. I don't frankly trust them. Yeah. Um, but if I, I would think that's a preferable to smoking because at the very least you're avoiding the smoke, there are definitely harms to the um, ingredients that are present in smokeless tobacco as well. Um, But I I think that's probably the lesser of the two evils. But I'd rather there be no evils if it were up to me. Yeah. Um, And additionally, it may mean something like medications like uh, Chantix, for example, or Wellbutrin, which are both medicines that, while not quite the same as nicotine replacement, can reduce cravings for nicotine. Mm. So if a patient is able to have those medicines, I would offer those if it's appropriate.
0: Okay. All right, so... Obesity, tobacco—we're pretty much talking about disease and also personal habits and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? That's fair. as being the first. Would you say it this way? Preventable disease. Yes. Based on uh, the average average human behaviors in America. I, I, I don't. I don't know. I think Would you so. say that's probably yeah. the, the the best way of saying our our, our number one cause of yes of the
1: preventable disease is probably the biggest reason we have high healthcare costs in the U.S. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, I have to add vaccine preventable diseases to that mix because I kind of thought we were done with those, and here they're coming back now. But I'm not even going to touch that, or I'm going to be <laughs> once I put my pediatric hat on I just... and talk about vaccines.
0: Like, all right, all right. Nothing infuriates me more than
1: that.
0: <laughs> I'm laughing because Nate and I have had many conversations about the vaccination conversations, and we'll leave that to another time because if Nate gets on that train that train no. will leave the station and we will yeah, be here no. for a long time no, no. <laughs> so, not today so 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 we'll we'll have a whole no. other vaccination podcast yeah. episode or maybe we won't yeah, but not, um, <laughs> yeah not today Satan. no but that that would be part of that too because that could be a, that could be a big concern yeah. not that, the that that's the of, leading cause of healthcare but that sure. general
1: mentality has certainly contributed to preventable disease yes sure sure um so part of the problem of being in the US is we have a plentiful plentiful resources we have the ability to ignore things that could be bigger problems. Yeah, and I think people often don't realize just how much how much those things come back to bite you in the butt down the line. Uh, so that's number one. Yeah, the number two thing. Now that we've talked about where the disease is coming from, only now can we start talking about what are we doing in treating that disease that's leading to cost, and. It's been said that the majority of costs that we incur in treating a disease, maybe as much as 80%, um, occurs in the last year of life. Mm. So, in all the time that a person has a chronic condition, whether that's asthma or hypertension or heart failure, et cetera, um, all of that added up is probably less than we spend on the healthcare of that person in the last year of their life. Wow. It's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, and it is also, to some degree, somewhat distinctly American. Um, in most other countries, while the last year of life certainly has an increase in cost, it's not quite to the proportion that we see in the U.S. Um, there are a few reasons for that, but probably the biggest one is that we don't necessarily make up our minds on when we want to die. <laughs> so if yeah. a person has stage 4 cancer, diffusely metastatic throughout their body, That is a universally horrible prognosis. Those patients don't tend to do well. And yet, it's not uncommon for someone to say, you know, I know that every doctor has said there's nothing that can be done, but we're not ready to say goodbye to mom. We're going to go to the best center in the U.S. We're going to go to X or Y or Z, you know, fill in the blank. And we're going to talk to Dr. So-and-so, the head department. We're going to try every chemo they have. And we have people getting their third and then fourth and then fifth round of chemotherapy and while i'm not an oncologist myself i do suspect that they don't save the best chemo for fifth and if no. one through four didn't work you know sometimes there are differences in the genetics that make you more likely to respond to one versus another but a sizable number of people end their lives pursuing what could be described as futile care mm. um and that's a very very touchy topic
0: of course, yeah. yeah. And so,
1: you know, it's it's difficult to say when a patient has really reached the end, um, and how much benefit there is to be getting from continued care. But every patient reaches a point where the benefits no longer justify the costs. And I don't say that purely as a cold bean counting accountant. I say that from the standpoint of the patient and their family that sometimes the suffering they endure is not worth the benefits of their care, mm. and more and more people are starting to recognize that, you know, I don't want to get this or that treatment. I don't want to have a defibrillator installed to shock my heart back to life over and over again. If my heart tries to stop, I just want to go naturally. Or, you know, I have diffuse metastatic pancreatic cancer. I don't want to get chemotherapy and have the side effects. I just want to go peacefully. Or, you know, I don't want to be put on the transplant list or, you know, have machinery installed or be hooked up to, you know, devices that keep me alive. I just want to go. Mm. And that's the single most painful decision that anyone can make for their family member. It's understandable that people don't want to have that decision made for them, but they also recognize that eventually, you know, the body puts its foot down and says enough is enough. Yeah. You know, eventually everyone dies. And the only question is, do you want to go out in a blaze of glory or do you want it to be something more comfortable? And, um, this is something that we've also tried in varying degrees to address through legislation for healthcare. Um, one of the easiest ways to deal with this is for people to have honest discussions with their physician of what they do and don't want done when the end of their life approaches. And you don't necessarily need a terminal diagnosis to have that conversation, but certainly having something with a, a major life-limiting effect to it, if you have You know end stage cancer or advanced copd or stage four heart failure you know it's it's good to say you know i would i would want this and i wouldn't want that i would i'd be okay with being put on a machine for a short term if i'm going to get better but i don't want to live my life as a vegetable or you know i'm okay with getting this surgery or that treatment but you know if it comes to the point that i need a feeding tube put in i don't want that i just want to go and you know a lot of times i think when people come in and say we just want everything done They don't know just how terrifying that can really be. They don't know what everything entails. Because we have a lot of things. Yeah. Everything is a lot of things.
0: Why do you think our do you think we just haven't created proper mourning mechanisms for death in our culture? Or like I'm I'm curious of the like psychological reality behind if you have if you have any thoughts on the psychological reality behind why our culture specifically it, it, it seems to be more affected by this than others. I wonder if it's part of our privilege. I do think America has a little bit of an underdog mentality. Not that we're yeah. not. Not that we're not like. We're obviously not the underdog. We're very large and powerful. Mm-hmm. But I mean more like the underdog mentality, and like like yeah, I, I so many of our stories are people who were resilient yes. and didn't give up, and that's why they were able to make it to the top or whatever, Or, right. to, 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 or to achieve their their goal. And so like, are we just applying that story? to the end of our life and like the diagnosis we just need to you know push through it and we just need to keep going i'm curious what you think about all that
1: so i i don't necessarily think it has as much to do let me go through your points a little bit you know in order um as far as the mourning process goes and with dealing with death i think we do that reasonably well if we can see it coming yeah i think everyone has some idea for what a good death versus a bad death looks like you know and a good death you know, comfortably closing your eyes and going to sleep at home, surrounded by friends and loved ones, you know, at the end of your life, after a long series of accomplishments, that's a better death than someone comes in with a drug overdose, gets CPR, is left a bloody mess in the ICU, and dies with family members weeping and screaming at the sky in the background. People Mm -hmm. know that there are ways of going well, and that those deaths can be tolerated and the life celebrated. The problem is people don't recognize when death is imminent and a lot of that is because they often expect us to always have plan b c and d in our back pockets they always expect that we have just another thing we can try well there's this new drug that just came out or there's this new surgery they're doing in cleveland or you know there's something we haven't done yet and we continue that over and over until eventually something catastrophic happens to break that cycle usually the only way of getting out of that cycle is for the patient to pass away unexpectedly while they were busy trying the next thing and once you go down that route it's tough to say we've tried enough we've done all the things that are most likely to work at this point we have to accept the reality that this is not going to get better and the most terrifying thing about that decision is what if you're wrong and something else would have worked yeah and a lot of that fall the responsibility falls on us as providers to be honest about the effects that we can get from some of these treatments that we have um, people don't quite understand how the probabilities work yeah um, and maybe it'd be helpful for them to know like you know this particular treatment you know has been shown to help you know 11% of patients that we give it to and the other 89 it has no impact you know so if you take a look at 10 people you know one of them might benefit and the other 9 would not you know is that worth it and for many people that would be enough Mm-hmm. Um, oncologists I've seen are very good at this, uh, partly because they have some of the most robust evidence behind, you know, how much effect you get from each treatment based on your specific risk markers. You know, if you have leukemia and they're able to tell it has this particular receptor on its surface, which makes it a good target for this particular drug, they have some of the most you know carefully tailored and customized treatments that they can offer, um, and often it's done in preparation with a uh, a fairly a fairly strict protocol that's mm-hmm. been tested in clinical trials and known to work with this particular degree of efe- efficacy or this particular success rate. So it's kind of unfortunate that oncologists get such a bad reputation as being the ones who give chemo and, you know, all this futile painful care with all these side effects, but they actually probably have some of the most robust evidence behind what they do.
0: I would assume oncologists also just from my assumption, they, they they're, they're probably the most skilled at having those conversations because they're constantly, If someone gets diagnosed with cancer, the first thing in their mind is prepared to to, to get a conversation about
1: death. People know cancer is a deadly disease. Exactly. In some cases. I mean, it's definitely not what it was even 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. And obviously calling it it like it's a single thing is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Now contrast that with something like heart failure, because if you have end stage heart failure, you know, NYHA class four heart failure, that's a worse prognosis than most cancers. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that. Mm. And so, you know, it's a surprise when grandma who's in and out of the hospital but otherwise is pretty fine in between, just, you know, suddenly has a what looks like a heart attack and dies one day. You know, they don't often think like we should be making our arrangements and getting our affairs in order just as if she'd been diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Um, obviously I'm a little bit biased as you know yeah. in cardiology, I see a yeah. lot of
0: heart disease. Well the I, I, I know the C word just Immediately your mind goes somewhere. Yeah. Like, does that make sense? Yes. So like I'm sure that that's a struggle when you're when you're like, but this is also critical. Like this is also a critical thing that should evoke those same emotions and same priorities. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of other conditions that are similarly bad that aren't necessarily recognized as bad because I mean, they just don't get the awareness of it. Like, okay, you know what the color of the breast cancer ribbon is, right? Mm -hmm. It's pink. Everyone knows it's pink. But breast cancer is not the leading cause of death in women. And in fact, it's not even the leading cause of cancer-related death in women. Hmm. That honor, quote-unquote, goes to lung disease. More women die of lung disease, or, or sorry, lung cancer, than any other form of cancer. Wow. Do you know what color the ribbon is for lung cancer? No. No. Is there a color? (laughs) i don't know i mean there was was talk of using like a clear ribbon which literally does not help the visibility at all sure sure (laughs) but the fact of the matter is people don't know what the biggest threats are yeah and a lot of it is just because the the most obvious problem right in front of your face is the one that people care the most about and not that breast cancer isn't a huge problem not that screening doesn't do good and that we haven't improved it but it, it's not the biggest issue that people need to be worrying about. Mm-hmm. It certainly is an issue, but it would be nice if people care just as much about the number one cause of death in women, which is heart disease, yeah. or if they wish the number one cause of cancer-related death, which is lung cancer. And that is true even in non-smokers. Mm. There are more ways than smoking to get lung cancer. Yeah. Um, so people tend to you know, misconstrue the risks and don't recognize what is the biggest issue that's standing in front of them. All of them matter, but some of them matter more than others.
0: So number two on the list is, would you call that like end of life care? Yes. End of life care. And, and would you consider, would you toss into that complication? And, and I would just be curious, like nursing homes, like that, even just the, the, the way in which we we choose to live out because that's that's healthcare related. That's yes, a cost. Yes. Yes. That, Although that has... certainly,
1: I mean, most of the cost that really drives up end of life care is emergency and intensive care. Okay. So that's that's when that's when your loved one is in the hospital in the ICU on a ventilator and on an artificial kidney and on ECMO and all these machines and we're pacing around wringing our hands saying, "Is there anything else we can be doing? Is this the end? Should we give up?" Oh no, because you know our cousin Billy's coming in from Florida. We can't you know we can't take off life support before he gets here and. Yeah, and we're talking
0: in that particular situation, it could be $10,000, $20,000 a day. Yes. It adds up fast. Yeah.
1: So definitely being in the hospital is the most expensive way to use healthcare and it far outshines any nursing home or long-term facility. Okay. By okay. far.
0: So end of life care, when should we pull the plug? When should we say goodbye? Has an effect. And I would say personally, that's a hard one. Yeah. That's a hard one because I don't know that I want a doctor making that decision for me. Right. But I also don't. Yeah, that's a hard one.
1: That's And another we one. don't, we do not make that decision. Ever. Sure. Yeah. I mean, unless the patient is brain dead, we don't just go and unplug a patient because by our judgment, we deem them unsalvageable. Yeah. Um, but our role is to give information to family to make the right choice. Yeah. What we perceive to be the right choice at yeah. least.
0: Yeah. Um, Make them aware of the options that exist. Right, like here
1: are the options. And more importantly, here's the likelihood of those options working because people have a tremendous bias towards optimism. If I tell them that this drug has a 1% effect of working, they will insist that they are going to be the 1%. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, if I tell them they have a 99% chance of having a side effect, well, they'll get lucky. You know, I mean, whether a 1% is big or small, it depends on how consequential it is to them. personally. Sure, and there's sure. been extensive psychological research on that specific phenomenon.
0: Do you think that's the United States phenomenon?
1: It kind of is in some ways. I mean, the United I- States is a place where... Anyone can, you know, the underdog can rise up and yep. fight off, you know, independence from Great Britain. It's where we can come in with two dollars in our pocket and start up a multi-billion dollar business. Yeah. You know, it's the land of the unexpected outcomes from the less than ideal circumstances. Exactly. And and that's
0: playing a role in even probably the way we see our health.
1: Yeah, to some absolutely. That
0: story that we've told ourselves yeah. or that we've been told yeah. about and, our and it, culture. Right.
1: And the story that, you know, US healthcare is the best in the world and we have the smartest doctors and the best scientists and the greatest treatments. And, you know, we have things that other countries don't, which is true in many ways. Um, And so that means there should always be something that can work, but everyone dies eventually. Yeah. You know, no one has ever survived.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have the preventable diseases Mm -hmm. and the behaviors attached to what create those as kind of our number one bucket. Uh-huh. Number two bucket is end of life care and how some people probably didn't need to stay alive in the state that they were in for as long as they were in and probably or at least maybe the way of saying it is costs were are, are incurred at that particular point in life mm-hmm. at an exorbitant amount sometimes um, in a way that isn't always necessary.
1: Yeah, and I would probably boil that down to cost with diminishing returns. Cost with
0: diminishing returns. Good, good, good. So
1: it's, you're spending money, but you're getting very little benefit, like, you know, minutes more of life or Mm -hmm. days of poor quality life or someone who just... You know, even though every stone's been turned over, they want that one more test for their vague, nonspecific symptoms that probably aren't anything serious. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we've ruled out all the most worrisome things or the treatable things and, you know, whatever's left, we don't do anything about. But they still want that test or they still want to try this medicine because it'd be better to take that pill than to actually, you know, change their lifestyle in some way. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't want to put this all on patients because we do this as well as physicians. We like to think that we should be able to give people perfect health and that is our goal and if we can do it great and we can sometimes there are many things that we can definitively cure and we're done mm-hmm. but that does not apply to everything yeah and we spend a lot of money chasing incremental benefits mm. so that i think is the general second category okay and the most you know expensive element of that is probably end-of-life care but it's just one reflection of something deeper gotcha. um i do want to linger on this for one more comment okay. um in an effort to address this i i do point back and again i don't have any strong political allegiances myself but the affordable care act was one of the more you know it was one of the more comprehensive efforts to improve health care whether it worked or it didn't or whether it was well constructed or not it tried to touch on everything and it did try and touch on the idea of -of end-of-life care okay how so so in its original state it provided for reimbursement for physicians to provide counseling on end-of-life care. So typically, if someone comes to the office, they're either coming because they're getting a well visit, meaning that it's their annual physical and they get preventative care for free, or it's because they have an illness and they want me to treat something specifically. But if someone comes in and says, you know, I just wanna talk, nothing's going on. Um, I already had my annual physical, but I've been kind of worried about the future. I have this diagnosis and even though it's okay now, something is coming down the line. Um, I could sit and talk with them for an hour, and I don't really get a dime for it. Now, we do have a way of billing for you know, counseling, that's mm-hmm. one thing, but that's only if an attending physician, not a resident does it. And it doesn't pay quite as much as if you were treating actual illness in the background as well. Okay. So one of the provisions to the Affordable Care Act was it would provide for payment for the service of planning out in advance end-of-life care to some degree. And that's where the word death panels came from.
0: Got gotcha. you. Because I was so, going to say, I was, I was getting there. I was going to say like yeah. that, that became a conversation. So huh?
1: that was twisted and warped and debased and frankly lied about. And the idea of death panels was cooked up whole cloth. There is no validity to it whatsoever. Um, and I would attribute this specifically to Sarah Palin, who yep. coined the phrase who told the the lie. Like I don't want to get too political, but this was a lie. She said Obamacare would cause death panels to occur where, you know, individuals, whether they're hospitals or whether they're insurance companies or whatever evil villain you want to put on there, would sit down and decide when enough was enough and they were going to no longer treat grandma.
0: Can I ask really quickly, is there any model that has death panels? No, not that, that, I know that we're of. aware of in the world. Not well, like, probably in there, the world. Is yes. there well, probably in the world, but I guess I'm saying like is there any modernized medicine like socialist like I, that that you're aware of that has such thing like I, I, i'm I think, not aware of anything
1: well i mean it, it is certainly within the rights of a national health system to decline what they think is futile care sure that's one thing but no one just says okay you've lived long enough you're done yeah um now having said that you know if you have a patient th- there have been circumstances there have been cases in the u.s where we have patients on life support who and this is particularly common among undocumented immigrants. Yeah, they're they're fine on the machines, but they're not getting better. And the you know whether it's by court order or by administration or I'm not sure exactly what legal obstacles have to be overcome. They decide independent of the family that we're going to withdraw life support. Hmm. So that has happened. Yeah, um, I'm
0: sure Sarah Palin was really concerned about
1: undocumented immigrants. Oh yes, when she said that. definitely that was yeah. her leading thought. Yeah. <laughs> So you know, <laughs> right, right. But 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 the fact of the matter was, like, any time you talk about end of life, all these alarm bells go off, and yes. people come up with these confabulated stories. Like, there was no semblance of truth to that claim. So and what it
0: was doing was it was allowing doctors to. It was almost incentivizing doctors to have those conversations was the, to prioritize was those the conversations within bill, their within yes. their. Um, their are paid for their patients to to, yes. to, to actually carve out uh, a time to sit down with their patient that would just simply be about end of life
1: yeah
0: it, desires for them and what they what like would this be would this probably include the conversation of a dnr and things yes, like that absolutely like, okay and dnr do not resuscitate correct obviously but, okay yeah.
1: so interesting just to, to touch on that so i uh, DNR is not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, what it refers to is it means if a patient's heart were to stop, they wouldn't want us to do CPR to compress their chest. They wouldn't want us to shock them with a defibrillator and run a code blue, quote-unquote, to try and get them back. And it's worth noting that even though CPR seems to work a lot on TV, um, the likelihood of someone surviving you know, with their brain intact after having a cardiac arrest is vanishingly small. Um, really? Yes.
0: So every time I watch an episode of House and they shock someone back to life and then they walk out of the hospital a couple of days later, i better like, yeah. that's usually not the way that ends.
1: Right. And, and it depends on why your heart stopped. Sure. Some people have, heart, I actually specialize specifically in heart rhythm problems, which can mean that sometimes a person's heart just stops for no reason, mm. essentially no reason. And if that happens, the best thing you can do is CPR shocks and get them back, and then they're good as new. But if your heart stops because every other organ in your body shut down and your heart was just the last standout, doing CPR is not going to fix them. It's not going to make the cancer go away. It's gotcha. not going to treat the infection. Whatever stopped the heart once we will do it again. In so a few if you minutes. already have
0: a, a disease, if you already have something, mm-hmm. you might not want a DNR, be, or you might want a DNR because you know that once that happens.
1: It's likely it's that the rest of your body
0: is pretty much already down. It's pretty much done. Okay.
1: And CPR is not gentle. If you do it properly, you break patients' ribs. Mm. When you push on the chest, you're supposed to make it go down two inches. So wow, it's it's. I mean, and, and the other thing about it is, you know, patients can wake up after you've restored their blood supply, and you know, if the CPR worked, best case scenario is that they're in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and it's uncommon for someone to survive CPR and not be on a ventilator for a day or two. So if you want to have CPR and shocks, you have to be comfortable being supported on machines for a little bit usually. Wow. Um, so people can say that, but they can also say... But see, these are things that I don't know. Yeah. And yeah.
0: these are things that is sitting down with the doctor, having that prioritized, like prioritizing that particular conversation, mm-hmm. which you're saying the Affordable Care Act did, like... Tried to do. It tried ended to up do. getting taken out. It got taken out? Yeah. Because oh. people
1: were afraid it would mean death panels. Oh,
0: so it didn't even go in. No, it didn't. mm but I feel like that would be such a benefit because I didn't right? know what you, what you just said. I didn't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is, you know, people overestimate the efficacy of things like even CPR. Yeah. And,
0: mm. and not the CPR is bad. Like let's, let's make it very clear. Like going taking a CPR class. Probably a good idea. Yes. Yeah. Pro- probably, really, really important to, right. to, to, to know how to do CPR yeah. and, to, and, 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 and people who, you know, I know people who, um, have, taking CPR classes and also I know people who administer CPR classes as far as like they train in that like right. those I are was, good things to have but it's like sometimes I think we we think oh well that's just there and that's gonna that'll solve it like right. like that's actually yeah an emergency uh, exactly thing, like. yeah
1: as as a AHA certified you know CPR <laughs> instructor of the past like <laughs> yeah. I would love everyone to take a CPR course you know push hard and fast in the center of the chest right in the center of the breastbone lock your elbows do it to the beat of staying alive Boom. If you know that, that's gorgeous in itself. Okay. <laughs> do it to the beat of staying yeah. alive. Uh, uh, uh. That's the exact frequency. Too fast or too slow, nice. it doesn't work. Nice. Okay, the so Bee-Gees now you all know CPR. The Bee gave us
0: more than music. Look exactly. That. Now
1: you all know CPR. Okay. But th- while well, CPR generally is the best thing you can do for someone who's heart stopped, and certainly what predicts that they'll survive is that someone nearby began it immediately when their heart stopped, which is yeah. why everyone needs to learn CPR there are certain patients who definitely do not benefit from cpr yeah and if your doctor tells you you are one of those patients the worst thing in the world that we can do is do chest compressions and shocks on you sure um so that sort of conversation is an important one that we don't really get an opportunity to do and patients don't like to hear it they don't like talking about the fact that they're going to die it should never be a surprise to learn they're going to die but it's an uncomfortable topic, and many people make the choice to kind of let it sneak up on them.
0: It's so interesting you say that because a, a lot of people talk about that even with making a will mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Like um, Brittany and I took a trip to <clears throat> our first trip away from the kids. We went to Seattle, and like, I, I was like, we got to make a will. Like, because like, what happens if something happens? Like, that was my, that was my thing. Like, we've got three kids. Like, what, where did they go? We don't know. Like, we don't have anything laid out of like what happens and, and, you know, and so we did. And like, I'm, I was having conversations with my family at that time about it. And like, it's just so funny to, to kind of see people who are a generation above you and that are like, Oh, well we're not having those conversations yet. And you're already having those conversations, but it's like, yeah. I, anything could happen. Like an accident could happen. Yeah, you know what true. I mean? And like, and I would rather be prepared than, than not. But like, I do know a lot of people struggle to have that conversation because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us struggle to accept the fact that we're going to die. Yeah. Like that's just the reality of it. Like, yeah, it's we, not a pleasant
1: notion. Yeah. yeah.
0: But the truth is the more you can prepare for that, one day you're going to die and there's a lot of people that really love you. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are going to be affected by that. Yeah. Like we're, we're just a few days after, um, Kobe Bryant yeah. passing and, and his daughter and the others on the helicopter. And like, that's a shock to everybody. Like it just, it, it was a national international, like I think shock. Right. But like someday you're going to die and the people within your sphere of influence are going to be shocked, saddened, hurt, Does that make sense? Yeah. The more planning you can do now, the less, I think, pain that's going to cause. I was, I've done multiple funerals. I've been in the room when people have taken their last breath. I've seen it done well and I've seen it done poorly. Yeah. I did a funeral where a fight broke out in the lobby (laughs) after the funeral because you have possessions that weren't willed properly Mm -hmm. and someone went to the house and just took things and like there's, you know, like, As some, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like you, you having that conversation with your doctor, but also having a, having a realization that like death is going to happen to me, like, and planning properly, not just for your healthcare, but also for your, your possessions and also your family and how that's all going to work. Yeah. We're not told enough that that's really important to our legacy. Yes. And to what we leave behind. Yes. Like, which I think I've seen it from the standpoint of a pastor walking families through the mourning process and realizing that it's increasingly complicated when you have a a family who hasn't planned appropriately for this situation they Mm -hmm. walk into the funeral home they don't have any plan they don't have any any idea of where are we gonna where are we even gonna bury like where are we gonna? where's this gonna happen how's that gonna like they're all making decisions on the fly. Who's making those decisions becomes the next question. All right. So it's for grandpa, but grandma's not here anymore. And which one of the kids is going to make the decision? Like all these things become increasingly complicating the stress of the situation. So planning ahead's good. And it's interesting to me that the doctors aren't already getting paid for those conversations. Like it would seem like that's a priority. Like that's... Not,
1: I mean, there's there's a way of getting payment for it, but it's not Shit. carved out as specifically as the Affordable Care Act would have had that provision gone through. So that got and taken out of. That the was taken care Act. out for fear of death panels. Yeah. Now there is an entire specialty of medicine, palliative care, yeah, which emphasizes those conversations. Um, it's not one of the most highly paid specialties. Yeah, it's not the most competitive field to break into, and a lot of hospitals don't tend to prioritize their services. But they are the pros of this in so many ways. But every every doctor should be capable of having that kind of conversation. Hmm. Um, but even if you're not going to have it with a professional per se, it's always a good idea to tell people close to you, you know, here's what I would want. Like, you know, if I, if I was uh, hit by a car tomorrow mm-hmm. and was in the ICU on a ventilator, you know, and they said, you know, half of my brain is dead, I would want them to pull the plug. Mm. Like I've... Everything I've done in my life has been about strengthening my mind and yeah. expanding my library of knowledge so that I can offer these services to others. And if I can't do that, then I, I, I don't want to be a burden. So mm. um, that sort of conversation is something that people should have where people would say, like, you know what? I think that no matter what happens, I will face it with joy and optimism and whatever God sends my way, I'll deal with. You know, if you think I'm going to pull through, that's great. I will live with what deficits I have. If it means I've got a colostomy and a trach and a feeding tube, then that's great. I'll enjoy the gift of life as I get it. Like, that's a respectable choice as well if someone wants to make it. Yeah. And the biggest problem is people don't make these opinions known before they're unable to express them. And someone comes in, they're in the hospital, in the ICU, and we ask family, you know, we we need to make a decision now. He didn't write anything down. He doesn't have an advanced directive. What do you think would be consistent with his wishes? What has he told you? And and that's sufficient. And the answer is
0: typically, I don't know. Would
1: you say? um, The answer is often, I don't know. Yeah. But even more frightening, the answer is often, he definitely wouldn't want this, but I'm not ready to let go. So, a, have the conversations, Mm. and b, make a commitment to honor the results, because a frequent and horrifying event is a patient expresses, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to be kept alive on machines. I don't want CPR. And then, you know, the family comes in and says, no, 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 not grandma. We have to save her quick, do everything. And, you know, if she didn't have an advanced directive and a living will and all these necessary elements, it's, we basically just have to take the opinion of whoever is there is to vouch for them. Mm-hmm. And the default assumption, if there's nothing, is to do everything. Like, it's it's never within the authority of the physician to say, well, this probably wouldn't be worth it, so we're not going to treat this patient. Yeah, The default is always to give the treatment, to put them on the machine, to do the CPR, etc., mm-hmm. unless we have proof that the patient would not have wanted it. And when we ask the family, you know, what decision shall we make? We're asking them to say, what would the patient say? Not, what do you want? You know, what did grandma tell you when she was awake? You know, what has she expressed to you in the past? Because it's not about the family, it's about that patient. Yeah. I mean, certainly some of it is about the family, but that patient has the right to make their own choices.
0: Can I say something that I think is really interesting about these first two buckets? They're very emotionally charged buckets. That's and not so emotionally right, charged yeah. in the sense that, like, people get angry debating them, but emotionally charged in that overeating is usually done out of some emotional attachment to food or to whether you stress eat or whatever. Like, like you can totally tie that into... And also behavioral like stuff is usually related to how you manage stress, how you manage your emotions, all those things, right? But then also, like, you're talking about emotions at the end of life. Yes. And, like, how maybe the wife comes in and is like, no, he wouldn't want this, but I'm not ready to let go yet. That's an emotional, you're making an emotional decision right now. You're not making a rational decision Mm -hmm. and you have every right to make that emotional decision. I'm not judging that person. I'm more just saying it seems to me that, and even, even the emotional decision of a cigarette, like this isn't Mm -hmm. a rational No, Very few people are rationally making a decision to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. They know it's going to kill them. You know, like they know it's bad for them. Um, they're usually just explaining it away, whatever. like, so, like, I guess what I'm saying is I find it interesting that these first two kind of buckets that are really critical to to the healthcare industry have a lot of uh, emotion imported into them in the way in which people react. So yes. emotional health seems to be like a really important thing to combat mm-hmm. both of those particular areas. Would yeah, you, I, mean, I
1: agree with that. And I also find very frequently that emotion fills in the gaps where intellect sometimes leaves, you know, a, a bit of a mystery. Sure. So people tend to resort to emotional explanations for things that are difficult to understand or things they may not simply know about. Mm. And, you know, the, when there is the family member in the ICU not doing well, the emotion is heavily amplified in the setting of a family who didn't see this coming that wasn't aware in advance that this last line treatment wasn't going to work, the longer they have to process it to recognize what's going on, to consider the options and to see the likely outcomes, usually the less dramatic the emotional element of it is. Mm. And likewise, when it comes to, you know, the, the lifestyle choices, whether it's food or whether it's substances, you know, a lot of these things tend to be less emotionally impactful when people understand some of the, you know, some of the specifics in terms of the risk they're taking in in relation to the benefits. So my own example, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I also used to be obese. Mm. At my worst, I weighed almost 260 pounds. Mm. And that was when I was in middle and high school. And when I went to college and started really hitting the books on biology, I'd wanted to be a doctor since I was like eight or 10, but I didn't know much about it. I certainly didn't know much about health and nutrition, despite what classes had taught me, which might have been an older model we probably wouldn't promote anymore. Sure. Um, But as I learned those things, I realized, oh, dang, I'm not doing this right at all. And I actually lost 80 pounds in that year. After my first year of college, I lost 80 pounds. Wow. Because honestly, like knowing, having the tools to recognize and correct these problems was more empowering to me than whatever was leading me to be overweight was doing from an emotional standpoint. Like the idea that I had this ability to fix this problem gave me more of an emotional benefit than whatever I was getting from whatever choices I was making before that point.
0: Yeah, because to a certain extent, you're you're like, oh, hold on. I can be in control. Yeah, exactly. There are like knobs and levers that I can pull that can change the way this goes. Yeah,
1: so I, I do think that You know, because it's difficult whenever you say that a problem isn't, you know, related to high emotions because not everyone has great control over that. But when the problem is something where it may just simply be that more information can be useful, where maybe people need to be taught some skills for working through some of these problems, Mm -hmm. you know, that is a much easier problem to fix. It's not always the solution. Not everyone is open to it. Yeah. But it's better than saying like, oh, you know, this crazy family in room so-and-so is, you know, putting up a fight again. We're just... You know, we wanted to talk about end-of-life care and they said, no, we're refusing. You know, like it's it's better than just simply labeling something a problem that we can't fix. Sure, yeah. sure. Whether it actually is sufficient to fix it or not, you know, is irrelevant. It's all we can do. Yeah. No, that's good. That's
0: really good. Okay, so we have bucket one, bucket yes. two. <laughs> we'll go to bucket three. All right. And then from there, we'll maybe talk about what actually we think about policy and, right, and such. Right.
1: So if the first problem is, we have too many diseases and the second problem is we treat those diseases way longer and harder than we should the third bucket is why is that treatment so expensive in itself yeah and so this is kind of a broad bucket but it includes among other things prescription drug costs it does include the number of providers who are actually involved in that care and the degree of you know sub-segmental hyper specialization Um, and it also involves the escalation in technology as well yeah so It's hard to break this down and point the finger at any one person, but if it were that simple, we'd have fixed it by now. So let me talk about some of the key players. Um, We can do a lot more for conditions now than we could 10, 20, 50, let alone 100 years ago. And it used to be that many of the conditions that we saw in the hospital were treated with bed, rest, thoughts, and prayers, and that was about it. (laughs) Um, So, okay, just as as an example, 100 years ago, if you came in with a heart attack... Mm -hmm. we would give you morphine and put you on bed rest. And so that would help the pain as your heart slowly necrosed and died as its blood supply was cut off because we couldn't stop that from happening. We could only make it more comfortable. And then we would wait for the complications because after that happens, there can be a hole that ruptures in the heart. One of the valves can break open. You can go into a deadly heart rhythm disorder and your heart just stops beating. Um, A lot of scary things would happen. Mm. Uh, But that was all we could do and even though the outcomes were worse and the treatment was pretty cheap beds aren't that expensive yeah um, now if you come in with a heart attack within 90 minutes we will have put you in the operating room under a biplane fluoroscopy angiography suite and advanced catheters into your heart through coronary catheterization process passed a wire across the lesion ballooned it and left a stent in most cases after which you'd be served on 2 antiplatelet medications and transferred to the icu where you'd be monitored for at least 48 hours before being downgraded the unit with follow-up in one week after that um, <laughs> you would probably leave on at least five medications probably an aspirin plavix ace inhibitor statin and beta blocker combination all of which are reasonably expensive thankfully generic, and you would have an army of specialists at your beck and call throughout this entire adventure. As you might imagine, that's a little more expensive than bed rest. Yeah. (laughs) However, because we have done that, we have taken an otherwise universally nasty disease and made it highly fixable. Um, After people have had these types of interventions, often their heart recovers very well. And while they're still at risk for having a heart attack in the future, they don't bear any of the scars that they would have had had they had that problem, that exact same problem years prior. Mm. So that's a success story in medicine. The fact that we've taken a previously untreatable disease and had an effortless system designed to address it, but it's also much more expensive. Um, So the question is, why does putting in that stent cost $10,000? Why does that medicine cost $100 a month, et cetera, et cetera? Um, And there's, you know, a lot that we can say about the technology and the drug companies in particular, and I'll touch on it very briefly, because I do think that, like everyone else in this story, they've gotten probably more negative attention than they deserve, although they're certainly players. Sure. Um, The biggest thing that people notice when it comes to prescription drug costs is that the same medicine that costs $100 a month here could be a dollar in Ecuador, or even in Cuba, or somewhere closer by, or up in Canada, for example. Sure. And the question is, well, why are drugs so darn expensive here compared to everywhere else? And some people will say, well, you know, it costs money to generate these medications, to go through the research process and the approval process, and that's all very true. And certainly, someone has to pay for that process. Mm-hmm. And once once it's been studied in country X, country Y I may pick it up and not have to pay those costs. Um, it does happen to be that the United States is a leader in developing technology and medications in healthcare and as a result it does so often with the assistance of the government who in exchange for their innovations offers them some unique advantages from a financial standpoint so let me give you a specific example Um, so in the u.s we have drug patents where if a company discovers a new drug they can get exclusive rights to produce it which means there is no competition so they can charge whatever they like until eventually it becomes generic down the line and then there's a little bit more going on with it Um, but that's not always the end of the story because it's not enough to simply make a drug to sell it you also have to prove that it works and so in this country we have the fda the food and drug administration who says in order to market this medication you have to prove that it's safe and effective so there are several rounds of clinical trials that are done where they you know first would test it for safety and then for efficacy and then long-term monitoring on the market to make sure that you know it does what it intends to do and doesn't cause undue side effects. And every stage of that process is expensive. Mm-hmm. And so what the FDA usually says is, if you want your drug to be approved by us, you pick up the bill to do these trials. So if a company comes up with a medication, they don't just give it to the FDA and the FDA studies it. The FDA says you find someone to study it and pay them. And if you give us good results, we'll approve it. So then the FDA will say, you know, maybe you could partner with, uh, you know, this hospital or that hospital or something, and then we'll have some agreement in place to make sure that you don't cook the books on us. And then they may come to our med center or any other med center in the U.S. and say, hey, would you like to do a trial for us? We'll give you money, give this medicine to these patients and give these patients a placebo. We'll study them and see what happens. Okay. And then we do the research without the drug company interfering. And we publish the results, and then the FDA says, okay, this works, or, you know, no, this isn't good enough for us, do it again, or do it in a different way. So that process is profoundly expensive as well. But once the studies have been done, the information's out there. If we do a trial in the U.S. and show that drug X is safe and it works, then, you know, Canada can say, oh, well, down there they already studied this drug, so we can just start giving it to people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Except it doesn't always work like that. Okay. Um, because the reasons why we get sick are different in the U.S. than in other countries, mm-hmm. which means the medicines that work for us may not work in other countries. So okay. if I were to go to, if I were to go to Germany and I was to look at everyone there who had heart attacks, and I was to look at everyone who had a heart attack in the U.S., they would differ in that we would probably have higher rates of obesity we would probably have a lower prevalence of things like familial hyperlipidemia, genetic conditions that make you more likely to have heart attacks. And so if we have a medicine that claims to lower the risk of heart attacks, if it does so through mechanisms that are unique to obesity, but don't work so well on genetic causes like yeah. hypertriglyceridemia, then you can't say that medicine will work as well in Germany as it works in the U.S. Sure. And so very frequently, medicines that are studied in Europe have to be restudied in the U.S and often it's the FDA that makes that decision. Mm. So partly because of the first two buckets that you know we get weird diseases in the US, we have to study treatments with a little bit more careful attention than they get in other countries. Whether that's justified in every case, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But at the very least, the thought process is we have a very high standard for what is safe and effective, and we won't just let any company sell anything. You can go to countries with very cheap healthcare And pick up your medicines for $4 when they're $100 here. But there may not be a guarantee that that medicine isn't a sugar pill. And Mm. I I don't want to point fingers at specific countries or specific governments. But, you know, studies have been done on over-the-counter antibiotics that people can pick up at these tourist pharmacies. Like, you know, I'm going to go on another cruise soon. Yeah. And I will go to islands where... or, or. where mm-hmm. some medicines are available over the counter and people go there with the intention of buying those things because they'd be prescription in the U.S. and that includes some frighteningly powerful medicines that probably should be only by prescription mm-hmm. and what'll happen is, you know, if they study these they may not all even have the ingredients they claim to have mm-hmm. or worse, they might have undisclosed contaminants Wow. and in the U.S. we decided collectively as a people we wouldn't stand for that and we would only permit a drug to come to the market if it has jumped through every hoop and hurdle that we can throw at it. And I, I think that that's a, a reasonably good idea for a country with our degree of affluence that we can, in some cases, afford to have that level of purity. Not everyone can. Yeah. And some people may say, you know what, I'd rather just take the risk. But if you want an example of how serious it is and how much the FDA does keep a rein on things, compare the market of prescription drugs with something like over-the-counter supplements. Yeah. So a unique factor that a lot of people don't realize about the FDA is um, when it comes to nutritional supplements, you are not required to prove that they work to market them. Exactly. So I could put together a capsule of vitamins and sugar and say this, you know, This is a supplement that's designed to reduce your chances of getting cancer. And I can put a little box that says these statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This drug is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any disease. And if I do that, you know, it's pretty hard to get that pulled off the shelves. You have to prove that something is harmful or ineffective to get it removed from the shelf, which is in contrast to a prescription drug, or or any drug really that's qualified as such by the definition of a drug, Um, those need to be proven to work to get on the shelves. So huge, huge double standards. So so
0: when you walk into uh, a GNC, for example, and this is actually a real big conversation right now that I've been like, okay, or at least I've been exposed to because I'm in CrossFit, but CrossFit as a sport, people will get pinged for performance enhancing drug, Mm -hmm. but then they'll find that and look, some people are doing performance enhancing drugs, don't get me wrong, but sometimes people get pinged and then they, they're they like, I did not take it. I, I, I promise I didn't take it. And then mm-hmm. they'll hand them their supplement that they take every day yeah. and they'll realize that's a tainted supplement because oh, that yes. particular supplement is made next to something that's on the banned list yep. and somehow they got mixed. Yes. Because the purity level, like you're mentioning, is not it's not necessary for supplements to have a purity level. And so when someone gets, and that could be their whole career, like, you know what I mean? Because they got that tainted supplement. And so you're sitting here like, wow, that's so, so even the supplement companies from like an athletic standpoint, people are like, people are wondering, I know there are independent um, testers and things that some supplements will go through that have rigorous standards. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But like, it's weird to me that the FDA doesn't test supplements because that I mean it is such an industry, such yeah. a large industry.
1: And a lot of it is explicitly driven by lobbyists and bias and who's voting sure. for the bills. And and the classic example of this is what are called homeopathic remedies. Mm-hmm. People don't know what homeopathic actually means. People think homeopathic means natural or home therapy or something like that. But technically the definition of a homeopathic substance is one of a specific set of preparations that's made by serial dilutions of an agent that does the opposite of what you intend the medicine to do. So let me break that down and phrase it a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> the, the principles, original principles of homeopathic therapy were that if a certain chemical gives you symptoms, if you take that chemical and dilute it down to really tiny amounts and then take it like medicine, it makes the symptoms go away.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Um, so like if, if there's a, a chemical or a root or an herb or some substance in nature that causes headaches, if you take it and dilute it down and drink it, it works as a headache medicine. And interestingly enough, the way that this is done through serial dilution can make it so dilute, not even one molecule of it even remains. So mm. you take a glass of water, you add a drop of something from what's called like a mother tincture, like a, a pure mm-hmm. extract. And then you shake that water up, you take a drop of it and put that drop in another glass of water, shake that up, take a drop of that. And so with each step, it becomes infinitesimally smaller. Mm -hmm. And it's diluted to the point where there is no substance remaining in some cases. It's just pure water or pure Mm -hmm. sugar or oil or wax or whatever it's prepared in. And extensively, it has been studied and found that these are placebos. They don't have any pharmacologic activity. And if they did, it would defy the laws of physics. Hmm. I don't think people who take quote homeopathic remedies often know that. I don't think they realize what that word specifically means.
0: Can you give me an example of like a homeopathic remedy? Because I think of GNC in the sense of like protein and mm-hmm. branch chain amino acids and things that I take like that. Um, are you more talking like essential oils? Or are you no, more no, 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 are no. you talking the same? So
1: what what defines something as homeopathic in addition to being a specifically recognized preparation? Is with that serial dilution process. Okay. So it's not so much the chemical itself as far as how it's prepared. Sure. So a preparation, and I don't want to disparage like specific companies or anything. Sure, sure, sure. I I tell you what, if if you go to any drugstore or even any pharmacy and you look for a quote homeopathic section. Okay. um, If you pick up pretty much any of those and look on the back and see an ingredient with um, like a dilution like 10x or 100x or 100c That's, quote, homeopathic notation. It refers to how many times it's been diluted. All of those would fall in this definition. And generally speaking, there is no evidence that any of them do anything. However, when the FDA came into effect, one of the congressmen who promoted it and was on board for it, an essential vote, was a practitioner of these homeopathic healing arts. Mm. And essentially, it's thought that a criterion for his support, which was essential to passing it, was that anything in the homeopathic pharmacopoeia was automatically exempt from evaluation by the FDA? Wow, people don't realize that. But anything labeled homeopathic is essentially not regulated as a drug. Period. Can you
0: give me an example of a homeopathic drug that's popular in in our country without like? I'm not not. I don't want to like. I don't want to like bash a particular drug or anything. I'm just more like curious what. I mean ibuprofen's not a homeopathic. No, truck. no, no. Like no, no, no. Like I just want to make sure to be clear. Like, we're not talking all over the counter no, stuff, because no. I would assume it's, ibuprofen, for example, right. is FDA approved. Yes. Of correct? Course. Okay. So like, so just as I'm thinking about someone listening to this wondering what exactly are we talking about like an herbal supplement?
1: Nope. Not necessarily. Okay. Because again, herbal supplements aren't by definition homeopathy. Okay. Something is homeopathic if it's been diluted. No, not no. quite. Okay, it's been diluted in a very specific way, okay. and if it's chosen because it causes the symptoms it's supposed to treat,
0: causes the symptoms. Right. I'm just trying to think if I've ever taken anything homeopathic.
1: Right. I'm so, saying. but the <laughs> thing about it is like if you if there's if there's an herb or an extract that has an anti-inflammatory effect and you okay. take it as an anti-inflammatory, that's not homeopathy. That's just herbal medicine. Gotcha. Whereas if you take an herb that is an inflammatory herb that causes pain but then you dilute it a, a billion I times see, see. now you've made a homeopathic remedy okay, okay okay and i am oversimplifying it because it's a long and cherished tradition to many sure, people sure but that is the crux of it and that is the element of it which makes it unscientific and that's why every time we've studied it it doesn't really work better than a placebo
0: okay and so in that particular way they're not monitored by the fda no and are herbs monitored by the fda not they, so much
1: they are so they're they're considered supplements.
0: Supplements, most so herbal they've...
1: therapies are considered supplements, which means the FDA doesn't prove they work. But if you can prove they are harmful, the FDA will step we'll in up. to remove it from the shelf. Yeah. Okay. But just being on the shelf doesn't mean it works.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yes. I'm learning about. I'm learning yeah. a lot. A lot about that.
1: But okay. again, I think the biggest thing is, I, I, people just need to, in terms of homeopathy, which is admittedly a confusing principle that's often misunderstood people need to actually look up what the strict definition of a homeopathic remedy is and see if this is really something they want to be taking.
0: What would you consider essential oils and all of that? Because like, I know, look, essential oils are fine. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to figure out, like, essential oils isn't going to cure your cancer. Like, no. not, and, and I'm not saying that some people believe that, but maybe there are. Uh, but some I guess, people do. But, yeah. but I guess I would say, like, it, some people <laughs> think essential oils is going to, like, cure them of whatever. Yeah, and, it, like, I, I guess... Would that fall into this too? Because you are kind of diluting oil. No, down. no, 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 no. Okay. So
1: it's it's again, homeopathy isn't just like a general strategy. It's a specific collection of practices okay. that happen to have as a common underlying factor diluting something to the point that it's basically gone. Gotcha. So when people are applying essential oils, the fact that it has a smell or an effect means Shows, it's probably there. It's more potent. Yeah. It's no. not diluted into non-existence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often been said homeopathic treatments are basically water or sugar that was once in contact with a drug. Got you. Um, which is exactly as silly as it sounds, but mm-hmm. some people swear by it because yeah. they did it and they felt better. And okay. we generally suggest that is placebo. Yeah.
0: Okay. That makes
1: um, sense. But that anyway, sense. as far as essential oils go, i mean i guess it depends on why you're using it if you're using it as aromatherapy if Mm -hmm. you're using it because it smells nice because it's calming because there's a proven effect that things like lavender you know help with sleep Mm -hmm. or you know that mint can help you to be more awake and alert you know all of that is legitimate um whereas if you're putting it on your skin and saying it has an anti-inflammatory effect then you're using it as kind of a topical herbal medicine Mm -hmm. um less evidence for that but not non-existent um People probably shouldn't be taking it by mouth, although some people do that. And then mm-hmm. that's a whole different category. Yeah. But, you know, it, it depends more on what it comes from than the fact that it simply is an essential oil. I mean, different oils do have different properties. Sure. I do think that it's been wildly overplayed and that people make claims about it that are sometimes irresponsible. Sure. Um, but that's all there is to say about that, I think. Okay.
0: All right. So... You went into the pharmaceutical industry. I would also assume the pharmaceutical industry, while it is a lot of cost for research and development, they probably have a lot of legal fees too. Because yes. Because you can sue a, a pharmaceutical. Like, I, Does that make sense? Like I oh, would yes. assume I would assume that's probably even more prevalent in that particular yes. industry it's, than a hospital.
1: It's easier to sue someone without having to look them in the eye. It's easier to sue a company than a person. Yeah. And so most people would rather sue the drug company than the doctor. I mean, they'll sue everyone. That's how suing works. But, yeah. you know, it's... Um, uh, it's it's definitely an easier target when you don't put a face on it. Um, so there is that. And certainly a lot of what we do with these clinical trials that they're required to complete are to reduce the likelihood of litigation as well. Sure. Because now we can at least say, well, it worked in that study and we didn't see that side effect. How could I have thought it was going to happen to this patient when no one's ever seen it before? Yeah. Um, so that's that's a valid defense as well. Like we can't be held accountable for things that we couldn't reasonably see coming. Mm-hmm. And doing our best to foresee those things is the best defense we have if we're going to say we didn't see it coming. Um, now, there's a lot of unique dynamics in the U.S. in terms of the ways we incentivize people to do those studies. Um, there's a particularly interesting story behind colchicine, which is a, it works as an anti-inflammatory medicine. Um, I use it most frequently in a condition called pericarditis, people who get inflammation of the lining around their heart. Um, NSAIDs are good for this. Colchicine is also very good for this. Um, But colchicine has gotten very expensive lately. Mm. And part of that is because even though it's been around for ages, one of the oldest medicines in the cabinet, um, at one point people said, you know, it's probably time we update the data on this. It's probably time we study it to see if it really works in the modern age as the reasons people get pericarditis change. It used to be it was a common complication after people had heart attacks. Now, not so much. We're getting better at treating heart attacks and more often people get it for mysterious reasons we don't know or from infections. So does it still work? Um, and essentially the agreement was, you know, whatever company wants to do the trial will get the rights to essentially re it of sorts. They get exclusive rights to produce it. And then it, you know, is no longer generic. So people talk about medicines becoming generic, but don't realize it can go the other way as well. A medicine can lose its generic status as an incentive for a company to do something different, prepare it in a different way, perhaps. To update it. Update it. Yeah. Um, one, another example is inhalers. Mm. Um, most modern inhalers now don't contain CFCs because we've decided spraying CFCs into the air is bad. Um, so, you know, drug companies were told if you can design this without CFCs, that counts as a new drug preparation and you get to patent that. And that means it's not generic anymore. And that means it's expensive. Hmm. So, you know, we do, we are very quick to use money to incentivize these changes, partly because they take money and partly because that's what people answer to. Um, I don't know if, It's reasonable to say, well, companies should just altruistically make their medicine better or study it because I would want to know if the drug works before selling it to someone. But that may not always be practical. Yeah. Um, The degree to which that's practical is up for debate. And, you know, if someone's making billions of dollars off this medicine, maybe they could spare a few to do a clinical trial for us. But that's also a uniquely American phenomenon is that you should be able to eat what you kill. If you've earned that money, it's yours. And, you know, that's that works really well in a lot of fields and it's been a motivator for a lot of innovation in healthcare but i think there is an upper limit to that to some degree and i think we've passed it in some cases
0: okay can i ask a question when it comes to phar- pharmaceuticals one of the things i find interesting that i've heard said is that we're one of the few countries in the modern world that that advertise them, that advertise them.
1: yeah that's weird and
0: so <laughs> so so like the super bowls coming up oh yeah we will see Advertisements for drugs. Yes, and it will say, "Talk to your doctor." Mm-hmm. You're a doctor. Do you yep. have people come talk to you and say, "They hey, do. I saw this commercial, and this is what I need to fix my th- thing." And do you kind end of. up sometimes having to be like, "Yeah, commercials are meant to get you to buy something." Like, like commercials right. should not be we, the things telling those... you to like. Yeah. Like, it's just I... interesting to me because I, I've, I personally don't go into a doctor's office saying, "I need this brand of." you know whatever right Uh, but like i'm also i don't know i i just find it interesting that that they can advertise because in other countries that is outlawed right like like pharmaceutical companies cannot advertise it's
1: it's again a distinctly american phenomenon in a lot of ways i will say it's not as big a problem as i thought it would be before i went to med school because i expected that exact scenario but realistically what happens is people come in and say you know I saw this medicine on TV. I have this condition. What do you think? And I said, Well, you know, if you want to try that type of drug, I think this might be a better option for you. It works the same way, but it's also a little cheaper. And they say, Great, I'll have that. Okay. You know, no one says, No, I must have this brand name product or I will die. And often when I explain how the medicine works and how other things work just as well, they get it. And part of that is because we're used to being advertised to in the US. We're used to the idea that people who are getting us to buy something have an incentive to make their product look the best. And whether it's food or a car or a phone, we we understand that that's how the process works. Yeah. And so i it is good to say most patients trust their doctor more than the drug companies when it comes to choosing the right medicine for them. I do think I've seen some unexpected benefits to it insofar as, you know, if I tell a patient I'd like to put you on, you know, this blood thinner. And there are lots of advertisements on TV for blood thinners for atrial fibrillation, which is a condition that I treat on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh yeah, I've heard about that. That's the one you only have to take once a day, right? Or, oh, that's the one that you can take if you have kidney disease like me, or, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's nice that they're familiar with it. And it's nice that they know the names of their medicine. Hmm. So in that regard, it has some positive effect. But yes, there is a small portion who come in and say, hey, doctor, you told me we tried everything, but I saw a commercial for blank. And then I have to have a long conversation of, I know that medicine crossed my mind. It will not work for you because blank or it's unsafe in your case because of blank. Yeah. And so the decision is made correctly. They usually say, oh, that makes sense. The commercial didn't mention that. And I'm like, I'll bet they didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it took up a lot of my time that I didn't necessarily need to spend if they had never seen that commercial. Sure. So I'm I'm confident in saying it probably doesn't significantly worsen outcomes, but it does complicate things sometimes.
0: And at the very least, how much are these drug companies spending
1: right. on these
0: advertisements Right. that ultimately aren't probably reaping them a whole lot of benefit. It must be There must be some benefit or else they wouldn't spend the money, but uh, yeah. they can then charge more for the drug probably because they're spending that much money on the advertisement. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I would, assume, I would assume the drug cost is not... There has to be some correlation to the amount they're marketing it. Uh,
1: perhaps, yeah. Uh, and you also
0: have marketers. This is one of the other things. Like I've been in doctors' offices enough, sitting there when some dude walks in with a brief briefcase or like a, a luggage, and he's there to meet with the doctor to talk mm-hmm. about um, medicine. I don't know if this still exists, but almost like incentivizing them to use particular um like i, so I know there are used the there are yeah. used i don't know if the affordable care act addressed that but like didn't there used to be like pharmaceutical um representatives that would that would even like incentivize people to prescribe if you prescribe a certain amount will like take you out to dinner like i don't know i just well, remember I mean, these, yeah, these like these like there, these, there's these a lot stories of stories that there's I've a heard. lot of
1: shady ways of doing that under yeah, the table yeah. yes
0: um, and I don't and, know if that works more in like family practice or more. It works VR, more in like private like practice. Private practice. That's what so I mean.
1: So most yeah. large academic medical centers would say, you know, stay away from our trainees and students. Yeah. Like you know, med students generally are not allowed to meet with these representatives. They're not allowed to come and bring us gifts and try and entice us to do things.
0: But is that something they would do if they were allowed? Oh, certainly yes. Okay.
1: And they did when they were allowed. Okay. I mean, it wasn't uncommon. Give me an
0: example of what was happening. and what's. I, I don't what, know any of the history of it. What I just know was I've, I've heard happening of it and is
1: They would say, hey, you know, we want to give you some educational material on this particular drug. Um, and it just so happens that that would take the form of a conference that's in Hawaii and we're paying to fly you down for <laughs> <per> a week. <laughs> You know, I wish there was some theological training that I needed
0: that required me to go to Hawaii. Right,
1: (laughs) right. On us, because your time and money are so important, you know. And... You know, hey, we we wanted to invite you specifically because, wow, you use a lot of this other medicine that we make over here. Okay. So we feel like you would really benefit from this training, especially. Oh. Okay. Which translates to you prescribed a lot of our drug. We're giving you a free vacation. Okay. That's what it means. Quid pro quo, some might call that. Some would call that a quid <laughs> pro quo. Okay. Um, and it has been shown through research that when representatives, you know, provide gifts to prescribers the prescriber is more likely to prescribe that drug. Yeah, of course. And even even when they said, no, of course, I would never do such a thing. And here's the thing. I don't think that any doctor would ever prescribe a drug they didn't think would work. But as a, as a simple example, in the modern age of atrial fibrillation, which is the most common heart rhythm disorder, um, we treat it with a number of blood thinners. And there's probably five good options on the market right now. And... You know, four of them are pretty much a similar mechanism of action. They work in about the same way, and they're all pretty much interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, which one I pick is a matter of personal preference, yeah, or the patient's preference. And you know, if today I feel like giving drug A, tomorrow I might feel like giving drug B. You know, there might be some very subtle differences that I try and customize, but it probably doesn't make a big difference. And if the patient said I really like C because I saw it on TV, I said it's equally good and the same price as A and B. Sure, let's make you happy. You know, when people choose things they're more likely to stick with them. Yep. And so if they specifically asked for that medicine, they're more likely to take it every day. Yeah. So why not? Sure. Mm-hmm. So even though there is some evidence saying that prescribers definitely are affected by these things, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that there's significant harm that comes from it. I don't think there's I would like to think doctors don't have a price at which we would give bad care. Yeah. But No, I
0: think it becomes more of a subconscious thing of like, yeah, yeah there's four good options and this one option means why? Yeah. so we'll go that option like yeah. <laughs> now did the affordable care act do anything to change that that you're aware of um, or was it more just I, other legislation because I, I feel like that, that that has been reformed that
1: has definitely toned down a lot yeah um the the biggest thing that a drug company can do nowadays is buy you lunch okay and many hospitals forbid even that really yes um mm. uh, which i think is a reasonable thing to do yeah to be honest i agree um but I, I don't know. I couldn't exactly cite the specific legislation sure. that made that happen.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, so we're in bucket three. Bucket three is a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pharmaceutical inter- industry being one of those things. What else is in this bucket? You know, a
1: lot of it is the standard on what we require to prove something is safe and effective. I would say that's a big thing. Okay. And the fact that you know, no matter how many times. We study it. There's always some new situation that we haven't studied specifically. And we say, well, now you have to go and study that if you want it to be approved for that indication as well. Mm. Um, but it's we, we've been surprised enough times by those studies that they're still worth doing. Mm. Um, so as an example, there was a blood thinner that we used to um, replace, uh, re- replace a less pleasant blood thinner, I suppose, sure. in patients who had mechanical heart valves. And because it worked just as well as this particular blood thinner on everything else, we said, well, you know, it's probably going to work just as well for heart valves. And then we studied it. And this trial was actually stopped early because it was killing them. And we said, ooh, good thing we did that study.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: So, you know, it's there are enough of those circumstances where it's still worth looking further. But, you know, there's there's always going to be. A trade-off. Every time we ask more questions we'll get more answers at the expense of more cost. Mm -hmm. And how much is a good balance? Do we want something to be 99% safe? Um, Would we be comfortable with 85% safe if we saved 80% of the costs? Mm -hmm. It comes down to the 80-20 split, if you're familiar. sure, 80% of your results come from the first 20% of your effort. And that means you'll spend the last 80% of your effort getting those last 20% of results. Mm -hmm. That's true for so many things. And while the numbers are not exact, I think it's similar in this case. That's true. And we are are a nation of we want the 100%. Mm -hmm. Which I think is what makes us so good in many ways. Yeah. But there's a cost to that. And you know, up until now, we've said we're comfortable accepting that cost. And, you know, as people get older and sicker, and as things become more complicated, we have to ask the question of, you know, when will the cost be too high? Because that day is going to come. And many would say it's already here. Anyone who's died of a treatable condition because they couldn't afford it is already there. Yeah. So,
0: so, so, okay. So would you say that that rounds out bucket three to some extent? Like we're, we're, We've kind of explained Bucket 3 to the extent that, I mean obviously we could go dive deep into any of these buckets for a long period of time even as we have already, Mm -hmm. right? Yes all right so that seemed like the best spot to stop we could have kept going uh, but ultimately we stopped there you have the three bucket idea of the things that uh, kind of uh, got us here Uh, maybe you agree with it maybe you don't ultimately uh, our healthcare system needs some reforming and uh, and we talked a lot about that so now what i'm going to ask you to do is this we're going to be coming out with a new episode uh, next week and we're going to continue the conversation but maybe you have some questions from this particular episode and uh, i'm going to encourage you to go to instagram or facebook or to pastorjustindouglas.com and send me those questions because we are going to follow up these two episodes uh, with a question and answer or question and response type uh, episode where i will feed nate your questions and we will talk about them because i know uh, this is a lot of information we're covering and i want to make sure that we get some opportunity for uh, some responses from y'all so um Instagram. It's Pastor Justin Douglas on Facebook. I believe it's Pastor Justin Douglas or just Justin Douglas. And, um, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com and find this episode and then put a comment in the episode. Thanks to Nathan McConkie for joining me and for talking healthcare. Also, just so you know, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. If you want to and are able to support the show financially, that would be amazing. You can also support the show by subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing. Getting the word out really does make a lot of difference. And I'm always thankful when I see others uh, sharing one of the podcasts, maybe taking a screenshot of it and putting it in their stories uh, on Instagram or all the other ways that you guys share it's really cool to see and i really 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 appreciate it may you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries giving others love exploring new ideas and championing belonging